Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 21st, 2015. Uh, this is episode 1629 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because, of course, it's Friday, Friday. Friday. That's right. This is the monster show of the week now, the expert panel show, where I have your questions for our 13 expert panel members. I think I've got 11 of them in the queue today, if uh, if I remember right. So uh, we're going to have a really good show today. I got two little pop culture inversions in like remember when I had, had one time I introduced uh, Paul Wheaton with uh, a Big Bang Theory segment I've got two for you kind of like that today neither of those involve the Duke of Permaculture though Paul Wheaton you'll have to wait and see and catch them when they happen I'm trying to have more fun with these shows on Friday make your Friday show just jam packed with information but fun as heck too um, you know this has not been a fun week for me but I think the way that you deal with weeks that aren't fun End them with some fun. I'm going to try to do that today, and I'll tell you about what's going on this week. And I have a big thank you for the audience as well, because you guys have really been there for me, and this 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 has been a tough week. So I uh, thank you for that, and, and more on that in a bit. Before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing, we want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show, and I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, 
And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year, of course, being 1629, because the episode's 1629. The first one I have is the Edict of Restitution. The stuff has really hit the fan now. And I have the English Parliament gets the boot as 11 years of tyranny begins. That's the one I'm going to read for you today if you want to know about the Edict of Restitution and... It's an interesting one. Get on tspwiki.com for the year 1629 and read what the awesome Alex Shrugged has penned there for us, or more accurately typed there for us. Let's look at the English Parliament gets the boot as 11 years of tyranny begins. The Duke of Buckingham was assassinated last year, having been an embarrassingly incompetent military leader and escaping impeachment from the English Parliament only by intervention of King Charles I, The public was ecstatic with the Duke's death and venerated the assassin even after King Charles had the man executed. Although King Charles is doing nothing beyond the normal powers of the previous English king, uh, kings, he is definitely ruling against the popular sentiments of his subjects. With a crushing economic depression in progress and his religious persecution of the Puritans, the king's subjects are escaping in droves from the Massachusetts Bay Colony since the Duke had been the king's advisor on foreign policy, and there's no war going on at this time. And since Parliament has been giving him such a hard time, King Charles dissolves Parliament and rules Great Britain alone. This is the beginning of 11 years of tyranny, leading to a civil war, followed by his trail of, trail of treason for beheading for the beheading of King Charles I in 1649. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug. The first Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, was a prime example of the problem of promoting someone based on favoritism rather than merit. This was mostly the heir of King James I, who liked George's angelic face. King James brought him clothing and guided his career in such a way to make sure George was always near the king. Evidently, he made George a duke. This all sounds a little strange. Well, it sounded strange to historians, too. After King James died, King Charles kept the Duke around as an advisor. The Duke seemed to not to be not very good at the details of warfare, as if he knew generally what to do, but didn't realize that his troops required organization, discipline, and training. A good example is when the Duke attacked France. On paper, the plan looked perfectly reasonable, but once his troops came ashore, they found a warehouse filled with wine, and thereafter all discipline was lost. 
After a drunken party, they managed to escape without accomplishing much of anything. And this was one of the Duke's better missions. I've known many people that I could hang out with but could never work with. So my take on this is a little bit different. I want to put this in perspective. Imagine the President of the United States comes forward and just says, you know what, I don't need Congress anymore. Goodbye. And, you know, we don't need that Supreme Court thing going. The courts will stay in place, but the Supreme Court deciding what what law is and is not constitutional, don't need that either. And bye-bye now. And actually have the wherewithal and the power to get it done. Here's the biggest problem there. The removal of inefficiency. You see, our founders are pretty smart guys. And they knew that the new nation had to have a government. The people really didn't know what to do without a government at this point. And the, 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 this, this new nation was in a position where... If, if there wasn't some level of a confederacy, right, or a federalism, some sort of thing uniting the 13 colonies that were now 13 states, that they were really just ripe to be picked off by whatever uh, aggressing nation decided to do so, including, you know, just you know, England coming back a few years later and saying, yeah, we didn't really mean it, kind of wait till everybody falls into some lackadaisicalness and, and just take back over or take a piece of it or who knew what. So they knew they, they had to have a government, and these were people that wanted government. Understand that our, our founders, as liberty-oriented as they were, were also statists. They were looking for a freer government, and they, they needed restrictions on government. And so they had a constitution, but their ultimate restriction was complexity. By making it difficult to get things done. One of the biggest problems with a dictatorship is that anything can be done immediately. So when somebody does something stupid that happens to be in charge, it becomes stupid for everybody. Or when somebody does something really malicious, it's malicious for immediately. There's no, there's no check or balance there. So that, that's why I wouldn't say that living in England before the 11 years of tyranny began was living as a free man by any means. But it's why tyranny is worse when a lesser number of people have control. Because the efficiency is slowed down. And government generally doesn't work hard to do things for the benefit of people. It works hard to do things for the benefit of itself. And that usually is at the expense of the people that it rules. There's another thing to realize here, though. No government can truly stand for long if the people they're governing has decided enough. We, we don't want this anymore. We, we, we want these guys out. Um, it ended up with, with the, the king's head being stretched, his neck being stretched, right? Was he beheaded or was he followed by his trial for treason for the beheading? I don't see what actually happened to him. So one way or another, he ended up in, in dire straits, okay? He's a king. I rule all. He had not so much anymore, buddy. And so when we look at governments like the United States, you realize today that the illusion of choice, the illusion of the election of leaders, the illusion that the people have control is one of the best ways that any government's ever developed to suppress insurrection and rebellion. Rather than an active suppression through the use of direct force, you have the use of indirect force and you have the use of force on individuals and individual groups and then you kind of percolate that all with, hey, but you know what? You're still free to elect your leader, so if you want to change it, you can. So then the people look around and go, well, this isn't worth bloodshed. We'll just vote them out next time. You can vote for the red shirt or the blue shirt, but you're still getting a shirt. Inside that shirt is still a talking head, and it is the velvet glove of the powers that be that will punch you in the face. 
my take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's see if we can do something about it by uh, exploring liberty and freedom and how we can do that for ourselves with today's show. Before we get into those things, though, I want to start out with just a heartfelt thank you for those that maybe missed Monday's show and don't know why there wasn't a show yesterday. My wife and I had to do something very, very difficult yesterday. We had to take my father-in-law uh, to a facility for assisted living and put him in there, uh, and he didn't want to go. And he he thinks he's going to rehab. That was the best way we could do this. He's in advanced stage Alzheimer's. And uh, just to tell you, part of what made it hard was we get to his house, and usually he's in bed, and we got there about you know 9 o'clock, 9.30 in the morning, something like that. And it's usually hard to get him out of bed. And he was up and about and doing things, and he seemed perfectly fine. Um, and all through it, we had to remind ourselves that you know there's been real problems here and just because he can appear lucid doesn't mean he really is he just is at a level he's working with you so that was the case all the way over and we get him dressed and all and we tell him like my wife says i don't want to tell him we're taking him to lunch or something i want to tell him you know you're going to rehab i want him to at least know because you know i just want to be honest with him as honest as i can and he says please just don't move me oh my god it's like okay he's worked that out and the whole way over i'm feeling like like i'm taking this man out of his house that he's been in for decades, a place he loves with all the things he loves. But I also know it's the right thing to do. Well, we get there, and immediately he says, I don't want to be here, I want to go home. And three, and he's really into women, man, especially now the filter is gone with the dementia. Walk up to him and touch him by the arm and say, let's take a walk around here. He's gone. He's just down the road. And this place is so amazing. If you ever need a facility like this for a loved one, the company is called Silverado. See if there's one around you. Immediately, one of these ladies breaks off, takes my wife <clears throat> by the shoulders, and walks her the opposite direction. And they took care of her as much as they were taking care of him. And we stayed there. We had lunch with him. This place is fantastic. I, I went and told the, the, the head of the culinary department, if I was in a restaurant paying $15 a plate for the food you just served, I couldn't find a complaint. Thank you. And it means a lot to know that he's going to eat well every day. And when we left him, he was sitting in front of a jazz saxophonist. I mean, th this place is just fantastic. And as I said on Monday's show, it's pretty expensive. But it's amazing how things work out. We struggled with this and wanted to know when the right time to do this was. And, and here's what had happened. There was a pretty big cost just to move him in before they start charging the monthly rate. And, and during this time, they were able to figure out how to waive that for us. And then... Yesterday when we were checking him in, the cost per month, had been, corporate had just come out with an edict saying, you know, we, we've done the math, we can bring people in at this first level of care um, uh, at a lower rate, and they dropped that cost by almost a 1000 bucks. So that added months to how long he can stay in a facility this good right there. I mean, that added two to three months just right there. And the other thing that happened was while we were there, He went in, and I won't give you the details, but he went into some pretty deep delusions, looking for his, his girlfriend uh, and things like that. And it was like, it actually gave us some peace because we're like, yeah, that's why we're doing this, you know. And uh, apparently he had a really good night, um, and they got him up for breakfast this morning, and he's going to exercise class. And they keep these folks doing stuff. All day long. There's maybe a half hour break here and a half hour break there, but there's something going on all day long. And it keeps them active from the time they get out of bed till the time they go back to bed. It puts them in a rhythm. And it's just, I wanted to share that with you guys because I know you guys know that listen to the Monday show, know that I went through a tough week. 
doing this to someone you care about, you know, my father-in-law is, is like a second father to me. Uh, and then my wife. I mean, I love my wife more than any other human being that walks the planet. So I've watched her for two years be a full-time employee taking care of her dad versus being able to be his daughter and be at peace. And to deal with that and to deal with her coming off of that and being upset and crying, and oh, my God, it was tough. But I feel better today than I did for the last six months about the situation. There's no more fear of doing it. There's no more what happens if we know. And the care that the guy's getting is outstanding. But I also wanted to bring it up just so I could tell you guys thank you. I must have received 200, 300 emails just saying, hey, we're thinking of you and telling me your stories that are similar. And uh, it means a lot. And it's part of what makes TSP not just a podcast. It makes us a community that we care about each other. And uh, I know a lot of you guys I've never met, but uh, I know I know you more than you think I do just from your emails. And uh, thanks for all that. All right. With that, um, before I, I take your uh, your first question for an expert council member, I want to give you a brief update on TSP workshops. We are you know we've got the one in October sold out, so just that one's in the in the frying pan, so to speak, and just getting ready to do it now and pull it off and do a great job for you guys with more stuff than ever. Uh, in a single workshop. And we're planning out the November one now, and I, I'd like to hear from some of you guys. Like, I want to know if the majority of people coming to the November one are people not coming to the October one. Three years ago, I would have asked this. You know, I would have assumed if you come to one, you're not going to come to another one 30 days later, a $500 three-day workshop. But so many of you guys come back. So I have John Dowie, who's doing a huge part of the instruction at this one, willing to come back and do it again. That's the microgreens class. That's a half a day out of three days. Um, so there's a lot of other things I want to get done in the second one, like establishing civil pasture and planting like 200 locust trees. So I'm trying to figure that one out. So I want to kind of know, like, if you're planning on coming to the November one and you have not you're, you're not coming to the October one. If you'd let me know that, just in the comments today, just go to 1629 and just say, I'm planning on being there in November. I'm not going to be there in October. Because if I have most of my class, I'm less concerned with some repetitive information. And people that have been through that information, we can always find something to do. Um, it's like a sideline thing, like just a fun thing while that, that class is going on, if that's what you want to do. Um, but November is going to be awesome, too. November is going to be quail-centric. I'm trying to work right now to get my hands on enough quail uh, at the right time that for that workshop, you know, we can butcher 100 quail or 120 quail. And everybody can have two or three quail for dinner one night of that workshop. Uh, and butchering a quail takes about a minute. And it'll be one of those things, like, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to, but everybody that wants to will be able to butcher a few quail and learn and see how quick and easy it is to do. And uh, we'll be, you know, then processing our own meat that's been tractored right here on the farm and uh, making that part of it. So so November is going to be awesome. Brad Davies is coming uh, to that one. Uh, he's the quail guy. He'll be doing most of the quail teaching. And he's also really kind of uh, switched on with SketchUp, which is a free program you can get and using Google Maps. So he's going to do a class on how to do contour maps and things like that using SketchUp. And we're going to do a lot of other cool stuff. So just know the November one's coming. It's probably not next week, but it'll probably be the week after that will have an agenda kind of put together. And then we'll go ahead and open reservations for it. But if you want to start, like, saying, I'm going to be there and I want to start making plans to travel, 
It is going to be the week of uh, November 11th, which is Veterans Day, which is a Wednesday. I figured that was a good day because a lot of people have it off anyway. So we have camping set up on the 11th. We have workshop on 12, 13, and 14, and everybody leaves on Sunday the 15th in the morning. So if you want to start looking for that, best airport to fly into, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. You can also fly into Love Field, but it's a longer drive, and it's it, it's not as, as optimum. Uh, and those of you coming to either of them, when you get out of the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport on the southern ent- exit and start heading toward you know Lake Worth, Fort Worth, Azle, where, where I'm at, On 183, there's a brand new like expressway, and that expressway, I think, if you drive through there, costs four or five bucks in tolls, worth every penny. You'll be here in 20 minutes if you take that thing. It'll take you over an hour if you don't. I don't even care if traffic's not peak. It's, it's, it's. I don't like that they're charging for it, but it's beautiful. And every time I have to go out that way, I use it. If I had to do it every day, it'd be a different story. But once or twice a month. Um, it's the best $5 I could spend. So just a little side note there. Anyway, with that, let's get into the uh, the main topic of today's show. We're talking about people coming here. That means you're leaving your homestead, right? And when you leave your homestead, trust me, I know, it's like, what do I do? Well, my first question today is for Jeff Lawton from Josh in Sydney, Australia, and it's exactly based on that. He says, I love the show, Jack. I've been listening for six months. I have a question for Jeff Lawton. He says, travel and homesteading are two of my biggest passions. How do you manage long periods of being away from the farm, especially in the early years when hiring a farm manager is just not financially feasible? Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing this one. Jeff, what say you, sir? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming at you from Australia. Um, early morning in a quite a cool subtropical winter's start to the day and I have a question here about uh, travel um, someone's asking about travel and homesteading being their uh, two biggest passions but uh, how do you manage long periods away from the farm especially in the early years when hiring a uh, farm manager is not financially feasible well if you're going to travel for long periods you can't keep animals um, if you haven't got anybody to look after them um, You could keep a worm farm if you uh, give it some extra feed, but uh, most of your farm animals are not going to feed themselves. And um, they always need to make sure you've got food and water. And uh, you can't keep an annual garden because annual gardens don't maintain themselves either. They're a human-orientated natural system um, and fail quite quickly if we're not in attendance. But you can have a perennial garden and you can have perennial crops that lasts for more than one season or even more than one year. And you can have fruit trees and food forests. And forestry systems in general are very long-term and and need very little maintenance once they've got a initial establishment at least. And you can catch your maintenance up when you get back. But your perennial systems are the the real answer. Now, the other way you can go is uh, do good work, attract a lot of people to your good work and that's pretty easy to do people get interested in what we do and um, get people to come and help you and stay at your place Um, so 
Permaculture is definitely about building community, and a lot of time it's unintentional community. So what I've always been able to achieve is uh, work that interests a lot of people. They come to our site, they want to help us, they want to work with us, and they want to look after the place while I'm away. So it's a real, it's, it's actually a, a people, community, interactive ecosystem, and um, they might do the best job or as detailed and as, as, as precise a job as you will, but they'll keep the system running and you get back and you can be very grateful and, and, and get it back into the finer, intimate details that you prefer. But that's the only way you can go about it. And um, it works fine. Um, one way or another, um, you've got to make those decisions about who milks your cow, who feeds your chickens, who waters and weeds your annual garden, or you design a system without those elements. Okay. Thank you. I think one way to look at this is it's kind of a pick your battles scenario. When you, when you get into, I want to be able to leave. And if you want to leave for a week or two, hiring someone for a week or two doesn't really cost enough to keep me in place, to make me not go. But they'll never really take care of your place to the level you would. So you have to be strategic. When do you go? The most stressful times a year for the property, you know, I've determined that it's a better idea not to leave during those. When, when things break a lot or when things are stressful. So midwinter for me, when it's the coldest and everything's freezing up and I know how to fix everything that breaks, and midsummer when things are the hottest. So early summer, late summer, spring and fall, those are my travel times now. Now I have animals and like Jeff says, that changes the whole dynamic of things. It really does. Because assuming you, you automate irrigation or you're in a place where you don't really need it or use it, a tree is going to do what a tree does whether you're there or not. But an animal, if not fed and watered, dies. And animals have things that happen that need to be addressed that just even you wouldn't want the animal not taken care of. For instance, my morning today started out with something I didn't want to spend my morning doing, uh, killing and processing a duck, and a duck that wasn't really worth processing. Uh, the young 300-layer uh, hybrid, these birds are a lot like, think about chickens, like an egg-laying chicken. They're just not meant for meat. Uh, they're a high-feed conversion animal, so a lightweight body, um, and you know you get a pound of meat off this bird. And this bird is uh, seven months old, so four years of laying productivity in front. Why? Oh, because we learned that turkeys can be worse than we thought, and um, one of the turkeys, is our best guess, uh, broke her back about down by the pelvis level, and her legs wouldn't move. She's paralyzed, basically, from the duck waist down. So, you know, I picked her up. Dorothy gave her a little love, took her out. Decapitation, and done. Now... Imagine that animal being in that condition for three or four days and dying in our heat. I, I, I don't want that for my animals. So animals without a person, to me, are out. Just because something like that could happen. If, like a cow getting tore up in, in fencing uh, when being attacked by a coyote or something like that. Who knows, right? So um, you're, you're down to plants only at that point, And the perennial systems are just the way to go. And that means that we have to be strategic in our planning And, and, and plan for whatever level of management we want to do. So great stuff from Jeff. Let's move on uh, to another permaculture one this time uh, for Ben Falk. Uh, ben, uh, I know you're a big fan of wood cook stoves for cooking, heat, and hot water. 
What do you do in the summer for cooking in hot water without heating your house up? We'd like to implement a similar system, but can't get past heating up the house in the summer part. We're in Ohio Zone 6A, so we do get some hot summer days. Not Texas hot, and cold winters, not Vermont cold. Thanks, Eric. I know exactly how Ben does this, because I've been there and seen it set up. But, I mean, it's a question a lot of people would ask. But you don't have a hot water heater? Nope. Okay, how do you get hot water? Oh, we use our wood stove. We have this multifunction wood stove, and it makes our house our water hot. Okay, and what do you cook on? Well, mostly we cook on the wood stove. Okay, it's 95 degrees out. You're firing up the wood stove. How does that work? Ben, tell them. How does it work? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole System Design. Um, as far as heating water you know, for dishes or showering in the summer, um, well, we've done it two different ways. Um, solar hot water is a great combo with wood. So you have solar panels up in the summer or solar panels up all year long. They kick in once the wood heating season ends. The sun is finally starting to come out in this part of the world, and we're getting plenty of hot water to take over. Um, and then once the sun's starting to go away in October, we start to burn the wood. That's probably the most difficult time is the swing seasons. Midwinter, we have plenty of hot water from wood. Midsummer, plenty of hot water from solar. Sometimes in October, when it's like mild but not sunny is when there'll be a little bit of a lack. And then we have backup propane, which is already, you know, in the house. Um, so yeah, that's our approach. I think we don't, we don't fire up a wood stove in the middle of summer. We could, you know, if there's no propane available or we want to lose, use less propane, we can do that. Um, propane is a, is, you know, a terrible thing to use. Um, it's terrible to source and it, it's not something we want to use, but we go through very little. We are now proud to say we, we use like, you know, 20 to 30 gallons a year heating water with propane. So that's not a lot. It's better than none, but it's not too much. Um, so, you know, heating up hot water, heating hot water with, uh, wood in the summer, if your house is well designed and you have venting up high and down low in this climate where I am, it's not a problem about heating up the house because you can just get the heat out of there enough. In your climate, it may be a problem, especially if a home isn't well designed for it. But a lot of these wood cook stoves are well insulated and they don't put out much heat if you keep the oven closed, you know, to, to a large extent, much less than a normal wood cook stove would. So that's how we do it right now. Um, you know, the solar in your climate will work even better. You probably get eight to nine months plus out of two solar hot water panels. We use flat plate because I think they're more reliable, although not quite as efficient as probably the modern um, evacuated tubes. But that's our approach. Best of luck to you. Yeah, adding a little bit for Ben. So the way his place is set up is he's got this beautiful studio that's also his residence. And, like, the bedrooms and all are, like, all up in a loft, and this is all timber frame. And it's built on a foundation. It's almost like a split-level foundation. It's like a basement, but the one side, it's not completely enclosed. So the back side is completely enclosed by by Mother Earth, so to speak. And then as you come out to the south-facing side, uh, the, even the basement is not like a walk up and out. It's like a walk out flat. And uh, it's pretty cool. It, it really is. And that wood stove that does all of those things is down there. So with it's just by changing, like, is it all open downstairs or is it closed in, forcing the heat up through the dwelling? You know, you can run that stove to do some things down there uh, in you know late summer when it's, it has cool nights and all, and and not really heat the house up. Or if you did felt you need the house up, you know, that residual heat that's left in the stove, you could close everything up and, and, and the house would be pretty well warm from it. So it's, 
it's not like it's sitting in the middle of his kitchen or something like that. It's it's this big, you know, basement type of of room that it sits down in, and it's really an amazing setup. If you ever get an opportunity to go to Ben Falk's place for a training event, it is really worth doing. Uh, with that, let's move on to the next question that I have for you guys here. Um, this one for uh, Erica Strauss. Um, th this one's about yogurt. This comes from Tom. Tom says, Erica, can you talk to us about making yogurt from scratch? It seems everything in a store seems to be low-fat or fat-free. Jack says there's no such thing as fat-free yogurt. I tend to agree. Can you explain how I can take local, raw, or even just organic whole milk and make real yogurt? I do have an Excalibur and understand you can use an Excalibur dehydrator to do that, but I don't get how that works. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Erica, what say you? Let's make some real yogurt, shall we? Because this is how I feel about most yogurt that comes from the store. Yogurt! Yogurt! I hate yogurt! Even with strawberries! Hi, Tom. Thanks for your question. Uh, you know, I agree with you and Jack about the fat content of yogurt. So if you're looking for a smooth, creamy, rich yogurt recipe that is definitely not non-fat, just stay tuned. I'm going to share my recipe with you guys. But first, let's talk a little bit about some DIY yogurt basics. So we're all on the same page about how to make yogurt at home. First of all, what is yogurt? We've talked about this before, but I'll just briefly say yogurt is milk that has been cultured by a mesophilic culture of lactic acid bacteria. All that means is that beneficial bacteria that like warm temperatures, that's mesophilic, they chow down on the sugar, the naturally occurring sugars in milk, and then they make tangy lactic acid kind of as a byproduct. This lactic acid lowers the pH of the milk until the milk thickens into a smooth curd. And because the pH of the yogurt is far lower than it would be for fresh milk, the yogurt lasts long. So this is a very early preservation technique. Now, making your own yogurt is easy. You just need milk, a starter culture of those lactic acid bacteria, and a way to keep those bacteria at their happy, warm, mesophilic temperature they prefer for several hours. So let's talk about each of these components in turn. For milk, most U.S. yogurt recipes are based on cow's milk because cow's milk is very easy to find here. But various cultures around the world have made yogurt from other milks. Sheep milk yogurt is traditional in Greece. In Tibet, yogurt is made from yak's milk. Goat milk yogurt is quite common around the world. So there's a good chance that if a culture depends on dairy from almost any animal, that that culture makes yogurt. Now, you can also make yogurt out of various non-animal milks, like soy milk and almond milk. But typically, you have to add additional thickeners to get these to set up. And there's a bit more effort involved. I mean... Honestly, have you even tried to find the udders on an almond? It's a real challenge. But seriously, if alternative milk yogurt is something you want to get into, just search. I don't have time to get into it today, but there are tutorials online you can find. Now, Tom, you asked about using raw milk for yogurt. If maintaining the enzyme profile of the raw milk is very important to you for health reasons, then I'm going to recommend that you look at making milk kefir instead of yogurt. Making yogurt typically starts with a simmering of the milk to get the milk up to about 180 or 190 degrees. This both pasteurizes the milk so that rogue microbes don't interfere with the culturing, and importantly, it changes the protein structure of the milk 
so that the yogurt will set up nice and thick. So if you're interested in using raw milk because you want to maintain that enzyme profile, that initial pasteurization is going to kill that off. But if you're using raw milk just because like you have a goat or a cow and that's what you get and you don't really care about preserving the rawness of the milk specifically, then there is nothing different about making yogurt with raw milk compared to making yogurt with like store-bought pre-pasteurized milk. All right, so for the starter culture of your yogurt, you've got three basic choices, an heirloom starter, a single-use starter, and an active culture yogurt. An heirloom starter is a stable bacterial colony that works a lot like a sourdough in bread making. As long as you keep a heirloom yogurt starter fed and maintained and healthy, you can pass that starter down to your grandkids. So if you're interested in heirloom starters, you want to order one online. It'll come freeze-dried in a little packet with instructions for rehydrating it and maintaining it. A single-use starter is a lot more like instant yeast in bread making. It'll turn out a great product, but it'll degrade over time, and you'll need to refresh it and replace it frequently to keep it vital. You can also order single-use starters online, or you can find them in some health food stores and kind of like hippie markets. I personally just use yogurt as my starter. A live active culture plain yogurt from the supermarket is full of those beneficial lactic acid bacteria we want to inoculate our milk. So this works great for your first batch. It's what I'd recommend. And then you just use the yogurt that you made to culture your next batch. The commercial yogurts are made with single use starters. So you're probably going to see some quality loss after several batches made this way as the culture degrades. Typically I find I can get three or four good generations of yogurt this way, but then I do need to go refresh my starter by getting another little pot of yogurt at the store. Now, if you're starting with commercial yogurt, which is what most people do, just make sure you start with a yogurt that has a flavor you like. And I'm talking about like plain. Make sure that you like the plain flavor of this yogurt, not with strawberries or honey or whatever added, because the various strains of lactic acid bacteria do impact the flavor profile of the yogurt. So you're going to want to make sure you start with something that has a flavor profile you like. And then double check to make sure that the yogurt that you're picking says contains live and active yogurt cultures. That's important, not just made with live active culture. You want it to contain it when you buy it and when you use it. So when it comes to culturing your yogurt, the goal is to maintain a temperature of about 110 to 115 degrees for four to eight hours. That gives those beneficial bacteria the right temperature and the right time to do what they need to do, converting the sugars in the milk to that lactic acid. You know, and there's a lot of ways to achieve this. I have one of those warming drawer things under my oven that's supposed to keep rolls and plates warm at Thanksgiving. So that's what I use to culture my yogurt. You can also get a cooler and put bottles full of uh, really hot water in there to create a warm environment that'll be maintained for four to eight hours. Some people will use their crock pot on low, although I will admit the crock pot method of yogurt making has never really worked for me. You can use a seed heating mat to create a gently warm area in your house house. Or, you know, look around. Maybe the top of your hot water heater is naturally around 110 degrees. So there's a lot of options. Bottom line, guys, just get creative with this. And if you absolutely must, you can buy a yogurt maker that will hold these temperatures for you. But before you do this, just honestly ask yourself, do you need another thing in your kitchen? Probably not, right? So Tom, for you specifically, I think your Excalibur should be able to maintain that 110 to 115 degree temperature range just fine. So um, take out all the trays and put your yogurt in there and that should work out just fine. 
Well, okay, now that you have all of the yogurt-making pieces, let's put them together with a recipe. So this is my recipe. This is what I use to make a thick, creamy yogurt that doesn't need straining. And just quick plug, this recipe is from my book, which is called The Hands-On Home. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon. So if you like the kind of stuff I talk about here on the Survival Podcast, you might want to take a look. This recipe makes eight cups of yogurt. You get a half gallon of milk, a cup of heavy cream. I told you this wasn't a low-fat yogurt recipe. And a half cup of plain active culture yogurt. Here's what you do. Very easy. Bring the milk and the cream to a bare simmer. You're looking for about 190 degrees on this. And stir frequently because you don't want your milk to scorch. Keep that milk at that temperature for about 20 minutes. And doing this, raising the milk up to this temperature and holding it, is going to lead to a nice thick curd. Now take your milk off the heat, cover it, and let it cool down to about 115 degrees. When your milk is cool, mix the half cup of yogurt with about a cup of that warm milk mixture until it's smooth, and then add this back to the pot with the warm milk. It's really important that you not add the starter yogurt too early because if you add it when the milk is still very hot, it's going to just kill that starter bacteria, and then you're not going to be able to make yogurt. Now, if you want, you can strain the inoculated milk. And if you have any rogue curdled milk proteins in there, that's a nice idea because the straining will remove them. Then you just ladle your cultured milk into mason jars or other containers and set that someplace 110 to 115 degrees for four to eight hours. So you can culture longer if you prefer, up to 24 hours if you want. The longer you culture your yogurt, the firmer and tangier it will be. And then after culturing, you move your jars to the fridge and you let them cool completely. So that's it. Homemade yogurt is dead simple. Uh, it really is not a complicated process. Do it once and you'll completely understand it. Do it three times and you'll be an expert. Tom, thanks so much for the great question. I hope this has helped get you a little insight into DIY yogurt making. Jack, thank you so much for all you do. Guys, keep those questions coming. Again, this is Erica from Northwest Edible Life. You can come say hi anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. I look forward to answering your questions next week and I will talk to you later. So next up today I have a like almost a perfect follow-up question for another expert council member and no it is not the illustrious chef Keith Snow it's for uh pr primal and uh paleo guru Gary Collins And it's on beneficial bacteria. So it's not directly, but I mean, it really is because one of the greatest places to get beneficial bacteria in our gut are fermented foods like yogurt. So this is an interesting question. It's one I've never even thought about before. This comes from Brandon. It says, is it possible to consume too many beneficial bacteria? Is there any benefit or potential risk of consuming supplemental probiotics on top of daily fermented foods? I've been working on fine-tuning my nutrition recently. I eat a paleo primal off and on for a while now and wanted to start experimenting with supplements. I was looking over the primal power methods store and was interested in the probiotics or the men's total health package. However, I already eat fermented food daily unless I'm on vacation. It is usually a small amount, a spoonful of raw sauerkraut or a single pickle, but occasionally they play a bigger role in my meal. Am I going to see any benefit by adding in the supplement, or am I taking any risks? Thanks in advance, Brandon. Uh, Gary, what say you on this? 
Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And real quick, I want to let everyone know, I've been getting a lot of emails, uh, that the men's and women's total health packages are back in stock along with everything else. Sorry about that, uh, had a rush on products during a short period of time that was unexpected, but everything's back. Um, to our question today about if you can do any harm, because this is one of the products in the package, and that's where that question derived from, and I do carry probiotics. Uh, separately that can you overconsume them if you're taking ingesting fermented foods on a regular basis and is there any harm or benefit to taking a probiotic if you're eating fermented foods first as always you guys know I like to explain and tell you the whys um, before the hows um, and explain how probiotics and bacteria work in our body from the last episode as I explained we are 10 to 1 bacteria to cells. So we are literally walking bacteria. Um, with that, we have a balance of bacteria in our colon and our small intestine. It's mostly in our colon, like I said last time, three to four pounds. So there's quite a bit. And our colon is considered our second stomach because that is where truly a lot of our nutrients are processed and absorbed into our bloodstream. Um, it's 85% good bacteria, around 15% bad bacteria, this balance. These bacteria have receptor sites and they're always communicating with each other to keep that balance. Because if we didn't have that balance, we didn't have bad bacteria to control the good bacteria, well, we would overgrow good bacteria and we'd literally become bacteria, decompose, and we would no longer exist. The bacteria would take us over. Just as with the bad bacteria, the good bacteria wants to control how much of the bad bacteria is there because otherwise we would die from disease. Um, and other maladies, because an overgrowth of bad bacteria, which is what we suffer from today, an uh, imbalance, you know, that's where you get your allergies, your autoimmune uh, deficiencies, you know, your asthma, your eczema, uh, you know, a lot, a whole host of chronic inflammation, inability to process food properly and nutrients, break foods down. That's what that bacteria is doing. And with that, we get most of our bacteria in the beginning as newborns through our mother's vaginal canal and through her breast milk, which today what we have is a lot of cesarean sections done. And then we also don't breastfeed very much anymore. So we start off right out of the gate, not with the proper bacteria in order to have a healthy immune system. That's why probiotics have become so popular today. Now with that, uh, a little more is our gut and brain through the vagus nerve are always communicating. Um, there is a direct connection between the two. So I've always said, and I always tell my clients and other people, unhealthy gut, unhealthy brain. That's how it works. That's how that communication is going all the time. And they've proven this through studies that, you know, especially with, uh, you know, cognitive responses and being able to think clearly and not have a foggy brain, good gut, gut bacteria is crucial for that. Primarily, it's also 80% of your immune system is contained in your gut. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of people don't explain that to you. These beneficial bacteria are incredibly important to your health. Now, where would we get a lot of this bacteria besides our food? Well, it would be throughout the environment. Uh, unlike a lot of uh, health people have said that our skin really is just a protective layer, it's not. We actually will excrete toxins and things out of our skin and we'll also absorb things through our skin. So that's why a lot of uh, products today, uh, especially in the drug company, 
drug companies are dermal. They actually rub them on your skin because they know it directly absorbs and gets into your bloodstream. Well, that would be the same with bacteria. You know, we'd always have our hands in the dirt, uh, in carcasses, touching plants, you know, each other. I mean, everything, our environment is filled with bacteria. So we would be absorbing this bacteria, good and bad, but, you know, obviously good, primarily good. And through our nose, through our ears, I mean, it comes through everything. Well, today we don't have that. We're washing all that away. We're not getting our hands in the dirt. We're using too many soaps. Um, people are pretty surprised. I very rarely use deodorant anymore. I do not uh, use a whole lot of soap. I rinse off. I don't shower as frequently as I used to. And people are going, oh my God, Gary's disgusting and stinky. No one's ever been able to tell. Because when you have an overabundance of bad bacteria, you actually stink. That's where the stench comes from. And I've noticed with a balance of good bacteria that I actually smell pretty decent. You know, I don't smell like roses or anything. I don't give off a perfume essence or anything, but I I don't have the body odor that I used to have. So I, I thought that would be very interesting because I get a lot of questions on that. that but back to the, the probiotics and if you can overconsume them. With the dose I have, and this is the reason why I did this, I have a low what I call maintenance dose through my primal power method probiotic. A lot of them out there are – the strains are too strong. There's too many bacteria in there. Some I've seen over 50 billion, and I consider 20 to 50 billion. That's kind of a, a practitioner grade, I would say, and someone you're trying to repair their gut or reseed that bacteria. Maybe after a surgery, you know, you get all these antibiotics, and it literally kills all the bacteria in your in your system. You're a wreck. I know. I came out of back surgery, and six months I was a mess. And I had to reseed my gut and basically start all over because they dosed me with a ridiculous amount of antibiotics. But with that, if you're eating fermented foods, the maintenance dose is not going to do anything, do any harm. Uh, will it benefit you? That just depends. Uh, everyone is an individual. I mean, as far as gut bacteria and bacteria in our bodies are very individual. It's like a fingerprint. Everyone's going to be different. Now, I've never had any issues uh, with people who regularly eat fermented foods having any issues with it. So with that, you just have to experiment with it. And one way you will know if you're getting too much probiotic, this is what I found in my experience with, uh, with clients, is you will start to get, uh, some, some stomach distress, some intestinal distress, and, you know, gassy. You'll have loose stools, uh, headaches, uh, maybe even get some cold sores. But the problem with that, that is also the symptoms of reseeding and your good bacteria killing off bad bacteria. So it's a little tough. You have to experiment with it, and everyone's different. But I have never seen an issue with anyone taking a probiotic maintenance dose. Um, and with that, it's also you have to look at this way with, with our ultra-clean society today – and all the antimicrobial soaps and cleansers and all this stuff that we're probably not getting enough strains even if we're eating through fermented foods. So it, 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 I find it beneficial. I take the men's total health package. That's how I created it. That, those are the supplements I take every day. I take a probiotic every day, especially I'll up the dose when I'm on the road and I don't have access to good foods and it helps boost my immune system. So I hope that answers your question. And, uh, 
Make sure to uh, hit the comments or email me at contact at Primal Power Method if you have any further questions. Thanks a lot. Um, my personal take on this is I kind of look at it like vitamin C. If vitamin C had five different, uh, 500 different variants, but they all kind of sort of did the same thing. And what I mean by that is I can't really overdose on vitamin C. If, if I take heroic amounts of vitamin C, uh, I, I'm producing absorbic acid urine eventually. I'm going to eliminate it as urine. Um, could I do harm to myself with vitamin C? It's possible, but I'd really have to want to do it. I mean, that that's kind of how I look at it. And I personally use probiotics. Though I will say that, like, I believe in not just doing, like, extensive amounts of things for the purpose of it. So I was taking a certain probiotic, and uh, I decided to give Gary's uh, men's health formula a trial. And uh, so since I'm taking his, I stopped taking the other one. And I do eat fermented foods. Escabeche, one of my favorites. Uh, and, and on that note, uh, yogurt I like, too, to make myself. And those of you coming to the October workshop, we will be making Escabeche. We will be making sauerkraut. Uh, and we will be making yogurt, and we'll be making yogurt cheese. Actually, I'll have a lot of it already made, and we'll be making some more so you can see how to do it, so you can taste it, because I don't have enough days to get it you know, all the way ripe, so to speak. So we're getting to sample some of those stuff. I mean, I'm going to make two kinds of escabeche. Escabeche is usually carrots, onions, and, and chili peppers. That's, that's a traditional uh, fermented uh, South American and Mexican uh, escabeche. Um, I usually add in sweet peppers with that, and I'm going to make two versions. I'm going to make the traditional. I'm going to make like a, I don't know, you make a, a a Bloody Mary without the vodka. You call it a Virgin Mary, right? So maybe a Virgin, virgin Escabeche, right? No chili peppers. It's going to be made with sweet peppers, onions, and carrots. So I'm going to make both of those so the people that don't like stuff to be too spicy can sample as well. Um, and I'm going to make that. I'm going to have that available for you guys. So um, fermented foods, I think, are... Something that if you start to research traditional cultures, and I don't mean just like indigenous natives that live in the middle of, you know, I don't know, the dark continent or something like that. I'm talking about, you know, traditional people that live in, in the Swiss highlands or, um, you know, just any culture from across the, the, the world that had, you know, a unique identifying culture and you just go back a hundred years uh, you'll find that there was a at least a fermented food in their diet. Like it wasn't something that we said, I got to make sure I eat my fermented food today. You know, if you were from Germany and their area surrounding it, things like sauerkraut were very common in, in Switzerland. Yogurts and, and, and cheeses, soft cheeses made from yogurts, uh, very common. In India, you have kefir and, and, and things like that. No matter where you go, again, Central and South America, Escobeche, you find these things. So... Make sure you uh, you give this stuff a chance. I've seen a lot of people say that they've had all types of, of, of gut issues. And uh, a lot of times people with autoimmune issues, especially not severe, like moderate, mild immune things, things, you know, headed toward, uh, what's it called, um, chronic fatigue. Like, you know, they don't really have it, but they kind of have symptoms like it. And sometimes it seems like they do. And they have good days and bad days and that type of thing. And just getting into probiotics and fermented foods, I've seen all kinds of skin conditions and things like that clear up for people. Uh, and when coupled with paleo, it just kind of just takes off like a steamroller for people. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I'm saying it's a hell of a lot better, you know, 
um, than, than thinking, you know, let's go try some kind of harsh uh, chemical drugs or something like that. Next question I have is for Mr. Stephen Harris himself. Stephen Harris, uh, this is your question, sir. Winter is coming. I live in the Midwest, St. Louis, Missouri, and I only have a gas furnace and two gas fireplaces. What is the best option for me to keep my family warm and safe? Two small children, my wife, my dog. If the power goes out for an extended period of time, we are unable to leave the house. Extra, I know this has been covered in the past, but I can't remember when and what episode and thought it would be a great time to refresh people on how to prepare for such an event with a high probability of impacting them anyway. Uh, we just moved into the house, and I would like to have one of the fireplaces converted to wood-burning insert, but my wife isn't on board with the expense of this time. Maybe next year. Thanks, Grant. Mr. Harris, what say you? How do we stay warm when we have a gas furnace, but the power's out, so we can't blow anything anywhere? Hi, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Council calling in to answer your question. Well, you're asking a very good question about powering your furnace in the winter time, which with winter coming up, it's an excellent question. Let me make this part clear. You are not going to run your house's furnace off of your battery bank that I teach you how to make. Your battery bank is not a lightsaber. The furnace blower motor in the furnace that blows the air around draws between 10 and 15 amps, which is 100 to 150 amps off of a 12-volt battery. Again, this ain't going to happen, so don't even consider it. In order to power your furnace, you are going to need a generator. So you are either going to have to rewire. In the United States, most of our furnaces are hardwired into a dedicated circuit. In Canada, they wire them so they go to a plug, and the plug plugs into an outlet that's on dedicated circuit that runs the furnace. So in the United States... If you want to run your furnace off your generator and to do it with an extension cable, you're going to have to have your furnace rewired so it has a plug on it and it goes into an outlet. So then you just take that plug and plug it into an extension cord, go to your generator outside, and you are now powering your house, your furnace, off of the generator. The other thing you can do is the furnace circuit can be backfed with a suicide cable. Warning, warning, Will Robinson, this is dangerous. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to electrocute your ass and you're going to be dead. I'm not kidding. In generator show number two, it, which is at solar1234.com, I explain the legal, the illegal, the safe, and the unsafe methods of powering your house off of a generator. This is so you know what the safe and unsafe methods are and know what they are in detail. So if your neighbor goes, hey, I can power your house with this cord if you plug it into your dryer outlet, and you're going to go, oh, no, that's dangerous. I don't want to do that. Or it could be the middle of a hurricane disaster, and your mother-in-law really needs her oxygen machine to work, and you go, okay, it's worth the risk. So it's up to you. It's in generator show number two on how to backfeed a house or backfeed a circuit. Again, I am not advising, not advising you to do this. So the other way of heating your house is with a ventless natural gas heater. Now, coming up on winter time, you will find these on the shelves of Walmart, and, and you will find them on the shelves of Lowe's. I've even seen them at Harbor Freight. 
there are two types of ventless natural gas heaters. One is a radiant heater or a ceramic brick heater. This is the one that has one, three, or five ceramic bricks in the front of it. There'll be white brick surfaces that you're looking at. And they have about a thousand or more little itty bitty holes in them. The natural gas comes through the brick and burns on the surface of the brick. And the brick then gets very hot, it gets red, and it radiates heat and it throws the heat on you. This is my favorite type of ventless natural gas heater. I own one and I have used one extensively as I will tell you about. The other type is called the blue flame heater. This is nothing more than a ventless natural gas heater where you run the natural gas into it and it produces a blue flame. It does not radiate heat out like the brick one does because it doesn't have anything glowing. It just burns the gas and heats the room or heats the house. My preferred type, again, is the brick type. So, now the issue is how do you get natural gas to the heater? Well, you can have these heaters mounted on the wall and professionally piped in with pipe from your plumber, and he can do this. And this is real common in the South to have this type of heater in a room or several of them in rooms around the house to heat where you don't have a big heat load. Georgia, Florida, places like that, this works. The other thing you can do is, and this goes into the dangerous field, if you, especially if you don't have a clue about what you're doing, is I have an adapter you can make from plumbing parts from Home Depot that you can screw on to the bottom of your hot water heater natural gas supply. If you have natural gas going or propane going to your hot water heater, you can screw this on to the hot water heater natural gas, and you can run natural gas through, yes, an airline, over to a brass fitting on the natural gas heater, and you can move it around to different rooms throughout your house. You can run it through up to 50 to 100 feet of airline, 3 eighths inch airline. And you can then move the heater around the house and you can heat the room that you so want to. This is really for people without children. And this is really for people who are desperate and are in an emergency situation. Again, I am not recommending that you do this. This is something I have done personally, and but I didn't have any kids in the house, and it worked very well for me. Now, let's see. If you want to know how to do this with the right plumbing pieces and everything, if you go to solar1234.com and you scroll about three-quarters of the way down, Right above where it says stupid stuff. Yeah, I actually have stupid stuff on my pages that I tell you not to buy, as well as all my good stuff I tell you to buy. It'll say emergency natural gas hookup for generator. Danger. Okay? If you click on this link, I will have many pictures in there that show you how you attach this onto the natural gas line. Basically, there's a little drip tube that comes down from your natural gas line before it goes into the hot water heater. You turn off the natural gas to the water heater, unscrew the cap on the bottom, screw on the adapter that you see in the emergency natural gas hookup for generator danger section, 
and then screw the cap back on the bottom, and you now have a T into the natural gas system with a natural gas valve. If your child opens this natural gas valve and there's nothing connected to it, your house will literally blow up. Bang. It will scatter the timber of your house all over the neighborhood, and everyone will be dead. So, again, this is really not something for, the, for you to put in place before a disaster. And if you did, you better have put some drill, some holes into the natural gas lever and lock it down with cable ties or a regular lock so no one can turn it so you won't blow your house up. But if you do put this adapter in the bottom of your hot water heater, you can take an airline, a 3 8 inch airline, put it onto the barb uh, fitting, uh, the brass barb fitting, put a uh, screw, uh, a cable screw, not a cable screw, what's it called? A worm screw on the thing and screw the thing down and put another brass fitting on your natural gas heater and put another worm screw on it and screw it down and then you can move your natural gas heater around the house. Natural gas is not going to leak out of an airline. The airline is rated for 250 PSI. It'll burst at 1,250 PSI. You are running about 0.3 PSI, 0.3 PSI of natural gas through the line. Natural gas molecules bigger than oxygen and nitrogen molecule is not going to go through the line. Don't give me these questions. Oh, can I do it? So uh, those are your two options. Now, I did this for six weeks in the middle of February and March in Michigan when my, when my furnace started throwing out carbon monoxide. My carbon monoxide detector detected it, and I had to turn off the furnace. I immediately turned on my natural gas heater, which is a five-brick ceramic heater, and it kept my house warm with 40,000 BTUs of heat. It kept it warm for six weeks continually. So it worked very good for me as long as you understand the dangers. Also, right below the natural gas section on solar1234.com that says danger, I have another link that says suicide electrical cables for backfeeding your house from your generator or inverter. And I cover more about the suicide cables in there. They're called suicide cables for a reason, okay? You can kill yourself. So this is Steve Harris. If you want to know everything I have done with Jack, please go to Stephen1234.com. See you later, guys, and don't do this. Bye. Um, I would like to add that you have a pretty big asset in it as it is just with the two gas fireplaces. Now, fireplaces are not the best uh, method of heating a house by any means at all. In fact, Generally, I've seen it tested where if you run a fireplace in a room, yes, that room is warmer than if you didn't have a fireplace. But a lot of times rooms beyond that, like further rooms away, the house actually get colder uh, as, as air is pulled through the house and, and heat goes up the chimney. And actually it will drop the temperature of peripheral rooms in a, in a conventional fireplace. The, the problem with fireplaces is most of the heat goes up instead of out. Uh, I'm not an expert on how to make a, a, a gas fireplace into something that is uh, a better heating thing. Uh, I really haven't looked at it because I've never owned one. Um, I have looked at, and I was very close to, except we decided to sell the house, to putting a, a, a fireplace insert, like a stove insert, into 
uh, a fireplace that actually allows for better heat exchange and more heat coming into the house. And if you do a, a one, convert one of your um, fireplaces to wood, that's what I would do. Uh, it doesn't look much different than a fireplace, but it sure works a heck of a lot better. I've checked them out. A low-cost thing that you might look at, and I'm thinking this costs about $150, $200 bucks to do, and there's companies that do this. I've seen them at home improvement shows, and it looks really cool. That will help with this. It will not heat your house, but it will certainly give more warmth to a room if all you're running is your, your gas fireplace. They, they build this little like reservoir in your fireplace, And you pick your color or mix of colors, and it's crushed glass, and it looks like kind of like automotive glass, like a like a really high uh, high uh, shatterproof glass chunks, little pieces of glass, and it sits in your fireplace. And then there's a gas uh, burner that sits just under those, and when you light your gas fireplace, it looks like flames flickering up out of this beautiful glass. When I saw these at these uh, home improvement shows and stuff like that, I like to go to these big trade shows like that. When they, and we have a lot of them here in Dallas and Fort Worth. You have a Sunday, you want something to do, it's cold out in the winter. They're a great place to go and see new stuff. And, and we would be at them, and whenever I'd see one of these, it would amaze me how much heat that glass would hold and radiate compared to if you just had a burner there. So I believe that might give you a little bit more warmth, and it just looks cool. So you get an ornamental thing. It looks cool. The wife's happy. It doesn't cost that much money. I don't know where you would find this online. I didn't have time to look for it today, but you might check into that. Again, it's just a crushed-colored glass uh, gas fireplace. And uh, if I remember right, it was like they, they came out and set it up for you if you already had gas to the fireplace for like 200 bucks or something like that. And it was pretty much that. You pick your color, we give us a phone call, we come out, we do it. Um, so check into that. That would just be one other option to consider. Uh, next question that I have today is for John Pugliano. This is a very common thing that people have to figure out for themselves. And a lot of people in the audience are uh, probably interested in hearing about uh, because it's just something that we all have to deal with because we all have to have some place to live. And then there's always this specter of uncertainty. What will the future bring economically uh, that, that falls into this? So this is from Tyler. Tyler says, given what we all think is coming in terms of economic struggles, what advice would you give a young couple with two children about buying a home versus staying in a rental? My younger sister and her husband have wanted a new home for some time. We live in Kansas where you can get a decent family home starting for around $70,000. Their household income is in the mid to high 30s. They have just gotten to a point where they have a few months of emergency fund along with a good size down payment, but they see economic writing on the wall just as I do. They've asked me my opinion on what to do, and honestly, I don't know what to tell them, which is the safer option. Thanks in advance, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for your question. Let's see if we can come up with some type of an answer for your sister. First off, when an individual is purchasing residential real estate that they, they plan to live in themselves, when it's going to be owner-occupied, we have to be really careful how or even if we categorize that as an investment. And the reason I say that is that I believe that many people are fooling themselves into believing that their home is an investment when in reality it's simply a living expense that's justifying uh, the standard of living that they're trying to achieve. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, we all have to live somewhere, and that's an expense that we can't avoid. 
But when it comes to your residential dwelling, I think people should think more clearly about how much is this actually costing me as a living expense to support the lifestyle that I'm choosing to live versus how much of this is actually a long-term investment in real estate that's going to help build my portfolio and my net worth over the coming years and decades. There are a lot of people out there that are what you would call house poor. They live in a big home. It looks impressive, but it's taking all of their income to support that type of a living expense. And that's what I would encourage people to avoid. When I look at people that are in the middle class that are striving to become financially independent, those that achieve it almost without exception live in a much, much less expensive home than they can afford. And that's 180 degrees out of phase from people that are in financial trouble. People that are in dire financial straits have usually bitten off way too much house than they can afford. Even with housing prices improving over the last six years, if you look at the lower end of the housing spectrum, say the the bottom one-third of the housing spectrum, well, then about 25% of those mortgages are still underwater. So the people that are kind of struggling in the middle class or the lower end strata of the middle class are still in a lot of problems when it comes to real estate. I would chalk that up to a lot of these people. They're just not financially savvy. They probably shouldn't have purchased a home to begin with. And then the home they did purchase is probably something more than they can afford. So what I encourage people to do is to not take on a mortgage that's more than two and a half to three times their income. You mentioned that your sister and her husband's income is somewhere in the mid to high 30,000s. So let's just assume they have an income of $37,000. That puts them in an affordability range of somewhere around $90,000 to $110,000. Now, the really good news is that you said that they live in Kansas, and in that area, a nice starter home can be purchased for around $70,000. So the good news is is they can definitely afford something not only in that $70,000 range, they could even step it up you know, potentially to somewhere in the range of maybe $100,000, $100,000 if they feel comfortable with that. Now, I do want to mention a disclaimer here. I'm not recommending that they purchase a house for any particular price. I'm just sharing with you my experience of over the last 30 years or more of not only building my own wealth, but studying middle-class millionaires. And to achieve their wealth over the long term, they stay within that two and a half to three times their income when it comes to taking on a mortgage. Now, the reason I'm suggesting that maybe they even want to step up a little higher than that $70,000 is the other part of how these middle-class millionaires built their wealth. In most cases, these people are not house flippers. They tend to stay in their homes for, you know, 10 to 20 years. They're not like the people that are constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses that every time they get a pay raise or a promotion, they move to a larger house. So something that your sister may want to think about is looking at a home that they not only want to live in today, but something that they would be comfortable living in and raising their children in over the next decade or so. I think that's really wise, particularly in today's real estate market, where we're not seeing the robust growth that we saw from the baby boomer generations, you know, that really took place from the 60s through about the 2000s. So unless you're in a really hot real estate market like San Francisco, I just don't think the average person is going to be able to move into a house and in two or three years be able to sell it at a high enough price to pay for all the sunk costs they have into it, the realtor's fees, and all those additional expenses. Based on current market conditions, and again, anecdotally what I've told you about how middle class people build wealth over their lifetime, I think the best strategy is to plan to stay in your house for as long as you possibly can. So I'm just throwing out the suggestion that your sister and her husband should maybe consider spending a little more buying that house that's maybe a little bit bigger than they think they may need today just so that they don't have to move in five or six years. 
Now, of course, it would still be wise for them to get something that maybe is a fixer-upper if they're handy, something that they can add value to. I also encourage people when they're looking at a, at a home to live in to not only just look at the property, but also look at ways that they can purchase a home that's going to help to further living costs. So a piece of property that they can plant a garden on to supply you know, their vegetables in the summertime, or perhaps a yard that's uh, large enough and zoned where you can keep small animals, you know, maybe chickens or ducks. That's also a great way to raise your children and teach them responsibility and self-sufficiency. They would also want to look at a home that's going to have lower maintenance costs. I mean, these are all things to take into consideration because the more you can reduce that expense from the cost of living in the home, the faster you can build equity and turn that house into a true investment potential. So as far as trying to time the real estate market, personally, I don't think this is a good time to be buying real estate. I think prices are back up to levels that are pretty high. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them roll back over and get a little lower in the coming months, maybe year. However, having said that, rental prices have really risen astronomically and have come up well above the price of real estate. And since real estate in your market seems to be very affordable based on their $37,000 or so income, as long as they go by that rule of not spending any more than three times their income on the on the mortgage, and if they plan to be in this house for the next 10, maybe 15, 20 years, then I wouldn't worry too much about trying to time the market. They have to live somewhere anyways. If they find their rent exceedingly high compared to the monthly payment that they could be getting on on a home, then even though we might be towards the top of this market cycle, they'll probably be fine over the long run. Now, I'll offer a couple other points here that we can finish up on, and I want to preface these final comments with some of my own personal commentary. You see, although I'm licensed as an investment advisor, my business model is not to offer advice. I've set my business up so that I'm compensated for managing people's portfolios. I obviously discuss things with my clients and answer their questions, but my business model is not to be compensated for giving advice. My business model is to be compensated by increasing the value of my clients' portfolios. Now, the reason I bring this up is this is a subtle point, but I think it's important. The reason I don't want to get paid for offering advice is because the advice that I give, which I believe is a very honest approach to building wealth, it's advice that nobody wants to really follow. And so it would be very frustrating for me to spend all my time offering advice to people that they don't follow through on. You know, even if I was being compensated for it, I would just be very discouraged by seeing the lack of outcome. The principles of building wealth are a lot like the principles of living a healthy life or, you know, maintaining your weight. There aren't any shortcuts. There aren't any celebrity diets that are going to allow you to get down to a healthy weight and maintain it. It's a lifestyle choice. It isn't something that happens over a day. It's something that happens over years and decades. I say that because this next bit of information I'm going to offer, virtually no one follows it, but I'm going to say it anyways. I don't think that someone should purchase a home unless they can put down at least a 20% down payment. And then in addition to that, they need to have at least three months of emergency savings. And this is money that they are not going to touch unless it's an emergency. That emergency fund is going to be for when stuff happens. Things like when your hot water tank breaks or the roof starts to leak or your hours get cut back at work or you lose your job or a child or a spouse gets hurt. These are the things that the emergency fund are for, and I don't think you should be a homeowner unless you have at least three months of living expenses saved up in that emergency fund. And again, as far as the down payment, I think it should be at least 20% cut and dry, period. Now, again, having said that, I know no one takes that advice. So, Tyler, to answer your bottom line question, what's the safer option for your sister and her husband? Is this a good time to buy or should they rent? 
Well, if they don't have a 20% down payment and they don't have a three-month emergency fund at the minimum, then I think they should rent. So on that note, I'll end here. I'll say if you'd like to know more about my wealth building principles and hear my commentary on the stock market, then please listen to the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. You're going to hear something very rare. You're going to hear me on some level disagree with John. That's not something that happens very often, but it's not a big disagreement. And I think we would actually say, yeah, either approach kind of sort of works uh, into this. Okay, but the first thing I want to do is I want to completely agree with him when he talks about his business model. And he he's an active investment uh, partner, basically, is the way I would describe it. So if you work with John as an investor, you say, here's my money. You manage my money. He's a money manager. Think of it like having... Your money is now you Inc. Mutual Fund, and John is your head of your mutual fund. So he'll make trades without you know explaining every single detail, or he'll just actively like, okay, we got to get out of this and do it, and then tell you, oh, by the way, we did this. That's not everybody's comfortable with that. That's that's how John works. And he's looking for people like that to work with. Uh, that's kind of how I felt about marketing and consulting as a, a marketing consultant. That's why I quit doing it back when I used to do it because I would give companies all this advice, they would pay for it, and then not do it. And I, I, I know that if you like look at the money you can make doing either one of those things, you'd say, so what? They paid you for it. You told them what to do. Your advice was good. They didn't follow it. As long as you got your money, why do you care? If you actually believe in what you do and love what you do the way John does when it comes to managing money or the way that I do when it comes to building business, um, to give that great advice and be compensated for it and not see it happen is is just awful. You can't you can't really deal with it uh, and feel good about yourself. You 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 want you, you're not doing it just to make money. You're doing it because you believe in what you're doing and you want results. So we completely agree there. On the three, you know, like you know, twenty percent down versus you know, you can do an FHA loan with three percent down. Veterans can do a zero percent down, etc. Um, I I agree and I disagree. The benchmark of being able to say if I want to, I can put twenty percent down on a hundred thousand dollar home. Let's use that as an example because it's really easy. I have twenty thousand dollars in cash and I can put it down on this house. And saying, if I'm not in that position financially, maybe I'm not ready to buy a home yet, I mostly agree with that. Now, the actual doing of it, hmm, this is something very, very different for me. If I can go finance a home with 3% down, and I can give them $3,000 plus all the closing costs and everything else that go on top of that, and I can keep $17,000 and not roll it into the equity of my home, and then keep it in my investments or use it to build my business or simply put it away as a cash emergency fund or use it to put it, take $17,000 and do $17,000 of work on the house and end up with a house that's not worth $117,000 but $137,000, something like that, where I can actually do more with the money with improvements or just hold the money I would rather do that with the money because the the especially in a house in the class of two hundred thousand dollars and down seventy thousand to one hundred fifty thousand all of these houses the money is going to give you a better return in almost any way that it's proactively used than sitting in equity. The only thing you're really going to do is reduce your payment not by much and avoid PMI. The last time I looked at a sub hundred thousand dollar house and do I put the twenty percent down or not was a house that I bought in Arkansas, and even though I would have avoided PMI, it would take me thirteen and a half years 
in PMI payments before I recouped my additional money. Well, I didn't do that because I'd rather have that money for 13 and a half years than take 13 and a half years to get it back. And the house payment reduction was so insignificant that it didn't really make sense to give the, the bank that money and roll it into the equity in the home. So, there, so it, the financial responsibility quotient, like you should be able to have three months of emergency funds and 20% down before you buy a house. I 90% agree. I'm going to talk about my disagreement there in just a second. Um, but d taking the money and actually going through with it, I see that totally differently than the, the, the ready quotient versus the, the action quotient. Okay. So the only reason for that 20% mandate, like we did that legally, is to prevent people from being stupid with their money. I prefer to be able to be smart with my money and be smart with my money. Like maybe it makes sense to put it in the equity of this house. Maybe it doesn't. Just saying. All right. So now that we've got that knocked out and out of the way, let's talk about the other place that I slightly disagree here. So when you say, you know, three months emergency fund, uh, you know, 20% down payment, okay, if you have the three months emergency fund, I find the 20% less important in making the decision at this price point. I got to be very clear about this at this price point. If you're buying a $400,000 house, I feel a lot more different about that because there are plenty of rental options that will cost you less money than a $400,000 house. A $80,000 house, so you say 70 is a starter home, we look for a little bit better, something with some fix-up options and stuff like that, but a little extra room, a little bit bigger yard, things like that, where I'm not going to want to move in a couple of years, completely agree there. I have an $800,000 house or $80,000 house. Right now, my payment on that home is going to be somewhere in the $800 range or south of there with interest rates where they are. Let's say $750. That's going to be principal, interest, PMI, insurance, and taxes in most tax you know areas with housing of that price. About 1% is what we can factor in. Now, it, the odds are that two people that want a two- to three-bedroom option are not going to pay much less than that in rent. So, while there can be some additional expenses on the property, what you're effectively doing, other than the taxes, is locking your housing expense at that number while rent will continuously go up. It was the case when I moved here to Texas in 1993 that I could buy a house, a decent three-bedroom house, in the $80,000 range. My first house I ever purchased was a three-bedroom, two-story house in a typical subdivision, and I bought it for $84,250. That house then sold two years later in the 90s because of improvements that we made, cleaning it up, doing the fixer-up thing, adding a pool, adding a deck, etc. We made about $10,000 when all was said and done, selling it for about $98,000 with about $4,000 out of pocket in, in, in improvements. So there was some appreciation in that house. Yet I can still find a house similar to that, maybe not in that same neighborhood that kind of came up in the world a little bit, but a house similar to that for under $100,000. At the same time, when I moved here, you could rent a nice two-bedroom apartment for $500. Anything that you want to live in in a two-bedroom apartment here right now is going to run you between $1,100 and $1,200 a month and up. 
So rent has gone up far more over the past 20 years here, 30 years here almost now, than the housing costs have. The two are decoupling. And a lot of that has to do with a lot of government subsidization for rental homes and for rental properties through uh, Section 8 and things like that. And some very nice apartments being built that I could barely afford to live in, but people that, that are you know on government assistance are living in. And, and my son was told, you make too much money to live here. My son doesn't make that much money. When I look at all of that, my opinion is if you can, if you can come up with the down payment, If you have three months of, of your expenses put away and purchasing a home will put you into that home for a monthly payment about the same or less than rent, unless you're planning to move soon, like it's a two-year play, then stay with rentals. If you're planning on staying there, buy the freaking house. And stop worrying about, well, what is the future for? You don't know, I don't know, John doesn't know, and nobody knows. The guy that emails you every week with a special investing system doesn't know the, the square root of F all to do with the future either. You don't know, and you don't buy or not buy a house based on the fact that the economy might collapse. That's, that's backwards thinking as far as I'm concerned, especially at this level of home. My biggest caution would here, and you could hear it, John cautioning it too, is not to buy a house with a starter home mentality here unless you're really early in your career and you really will be progressing and you really are going to make improvements because even though I'm cautioning you against it, it's what I did. We made money on every home that we ever bought and most of our homes were held for under five years and none of them were in locations known for rapid appreciation of housing. Where I live now, that's beginning to happen, but it is the first time in all of the years I've lived here, that that's the case. When you buy smart and you think about the home as it can be with the smallest investment possible, there is the ability to build equity as you move up in homes. But it needs to be something that you do with a very calculating, very cold business approach, and most people aren't capable of it. The key and why it's worked for me is I always paid less for the house than it was really worth. Always. And I paid less for it as it was worth as it sat because I found certain things that people found undesirable that were easily fixed and sellers were too lazy or too distressed to correct. Carpeting, paint, badly manic you know, badly dressed up yards, things like that. Things that were like, I can come in here and I can fix everything for less than five thousand dollars. And then I did it. And then we put maybe another, over the few years, another $5,000, have $10,000 in a house. You paid $137,000 for it. We sold that particular house for $195,000 only three years later. And not due to a rapidly appreciating market, due to the smart improvement in the value of the home. We bought homes that appraised for $20,000 more than we paid for them as they sat twice. If you can do that and you can keep your payments about the same, I have a technical difference here with the way John analyzes this, but I think that we would both agree that both of our answers are correct depending on how they're applied. And in the end, you have to apply the advice. Let's go ahead and take another question. This one for Nick Ferguson, totally different thing. A question for Nick Ferguson from Jane. When and how much to fertilize seedling starts? I have various shrubs and trees from seed and standard seed starting soil. None are mature enough to set out yet. I'm concerned about feeding them 
uh, as the start of medium is not really so, the, the starting medium is not really soil and has little to no value in fertility. Should I fertilize my starts? How often and using what NPK ratios? Among my tree starts are moringa, honey locust, shrubs include cassia and karanga. Thanks, Jane. Nick, what say you? Well, this is a quick, easy one. You want to start feeding those seedlings when they first start to show that they are getting ready to put out true leaves. The first leaves that pop out of the seed are the cotyledons, the seedling leaves. You know, they look kind of funky. And then the next ones to grow are the true leaves, and they look different than the first leaves. Um, so since you're asking me this question, I'll assume that you are a beginner. So I'm going to give you the advice that will most likely ensure your success. And some people are going to cringe when I say this, but I'm going to tell you to use Miracle-Gro Quick Start Planting and Transplanting Solution. Use it according to the, the label. Then after two weeks or so, change over to the regular Miracle-Gro plant food and feed that according to the label as well. Um, <laughs> so you'll want to branch out and learn how to grow without using this kind of fertilizer, but honestly, it works. And I would rather see you use the awful blue stuff and be successful growing those plants than try to do things the super organic, sustainable way and stack too much complexity and room for failure into the learning curve. Right now, the goal needs to be thriving plants that are alive and for you to be a happy grower. And if your plants are dead because you just missed something or you did something a little bit off, then you're not going to be a happy grower because you're going to have dead plants. So I even use the blue stuff sometimes when I don't have time to make a better natural biologically active fertilizer components. It's it's really a complicated topic and would take a lot of expertise to do things the best way um, and the best way, which is all natural. So for now, go with the tried and true blue stuff. The great thing is that even if you use a natural fertilizer like I'm suggesting, you can still end up with very resilient and healthy trees in the long run. They're going to adapt to your soils, and you can spend the next couple of years learning more natural ways of feeding them and building soil fertility the natural way. So great question. I'm really glad I got to help you get this figured out. Best of luck to you and your plants. I'm Nick Ferguson. And if you are interested in what cool new projects I have coming up, head over to my website and sign up for the email list, permacultureclassroom.com. We actually have an Earthworks workshop coming up October 22nd through the 24th, where we are going to be implementing our mainframe Earthworks here on my property. I can't tell you how excited I am to finally get to do this. I've installed mainframe Earthworks for so many clients the past couple years, and finally I get to do my own. So if you're interested in learning all about how to do this stuff and getting the first shot at signing up, make sure you sign up for the email. I'll be sending out a link for a discount for all the TSP listeners who do so. With that, have a great weekend, everyone. I'm Nick, signing out. Oh my God, not that. No, anything but miracle grow. I, I think we need to take this into some context here. So we're not talking about tomatoes. We're not talking about eggplants. We're not talking about peppers. We're not talking about something we're going to be eating anything off of. I mean, most of the plants that she's talking about here, you're not going to be eating anything off of ever. Uh, these are nitrogen fixers for sport species, probably in some sort of food forest. So... It becomes almost a mood at that point. But if it was, um, let's say you were doing 
Antonovka apple, uh, and you were eventually this tree was going to produce an apple that you were going to eat or make apple cider out of or apple pie out of or whatever. Um, think about the age that tree is going to be before that happens. Now think about the medium that that tree's growing in. What we're doing here is we're growing bare root trees. They're, they're not bare root right now, but we're going to transplant these and set them out either in a early spring or late fall or somewhere in midwinter is a bare root tree in a dormant state, uh, and we're going we're gonna to pull it up out of this medium. So what is it in? It's probably in a mix of something like peat, a little bit of peat moss, and sand and gravel or vermiculite or perlite or something, a very, very light, fluffy material that's easy to get the roots out, have all the hair roots, have this beautiful root system. And the reason we're growing it ourselves is so it doesn't get yanked out and then chopped up and pruned off and, and wrapped up in a box and shoved in a refrigerator and then shipped to us. That's the second best thing we can do. And it's not anywhere near as good as straight out of our nursery and straight into the ground with a beautiful root system. Or if we're selling to a customer to, do, to plant this tree, we, we pull that tree the day they want to come get it. They come get it locally and they go put it in the ground with a beautiful root system on it. And, and that means that that medium that it's in has very little nutrient, and it's not something we want to build. We're not going to build soil there. We want to just feed the tree. Now, I think that we can do a lot with uh, fertilizer made from more of like a fertilizer tea, liquid organics, and things like that. But when it comes down to it, Miracle Grow works. This is what I've talked about in the, in the past. Like, we have to even talk about this when we look at something like. You know, as an anarchist talking about how we could have a freer society without the state, we can't see nothing about the state is beneficial. We can't say nothing works. We just say we have a better way to do things, and, and we believe morally in a different way. But we can't say that it's not beneficial that there's roads in this country. We could say there's a better way to get a road system. We could have a, a better maintained road system. We can even say in some levels we might not need as many roads. If we had technology freed up to do things a different way, but we can't say that we don't benefit from that. Well, that's how Miracle Grow is to me. It works for what it's good for. So if I have a, a let's say, a raised bed that I've built with um, a medium in it that's specifically designed to produce bare root trees and shrubs, and I want to give those trees and shrubs a kind of a kickstart and get a lot of growth on them fast so they're established and ready to go into my organic system, and I put some miracle Grow on there, what evil does it really do? I'm not going to use a whole bunch of it and have it leaching out everywhere, am I? It's going to go in the plant, right? And if it is an Antonovka apple or it's a pecan that's going to produce an edible pecan that I'm growing from cedar, it's chestnut. And I put that out, and it's producing something for me to eat or something for my animals to eat two years, three years, five years later. At that point, what's left of that miracle grow that it was fed when it was a seedling? The answer is nothing. That's why I don't have any disagreement with what with what Nick had to say right there. Next question. Let's go into a cooking question, but it's not really cook. You're actually not going to be that hungry. You might get a little hungry, but not that hungry from Chef Keith Snow's answer this week because it's not about how to cook something. It's about something you use for cooking. It says, hey, Chef Keith, I'm a big fan of your stuff, and I watch a lot of TV chefs too. Bobby Flay is one of my favorites. Like you, I have a Vitamix, but I notice when Bobby is doing marinades or what have you, sometimes he uses a blender. And sometimes he uses a food processor. 
My question is, is there anything a food processor does that our Vitamix, is, uh, Vitamix units don't? If so, when do I use the processor versus the Vitamix or the blender? If you have any quick marinades to make with either, I'd love to hear that as well. Thanks, Tara. Uh, actually, I like Bobby Flay, too. He's one of my favorite guys. I actually uh, DVR barbecue addiction. I almost said tape, and I caught myself as an old man that still uses the word tape something, right? <laughs> Ain't been no tape in this house in a long time unless it's for closing a box or holding something together. But I watch Bobby, too, and, and Chef Keith said it's kind of an odd question. I said, it's not to me, because I think the same thing. I'll see Bobby make a marinade, you know, throw some stuff together with some oil and all, and and, and do it in a, in a blender, and then the next show I watch, he'll make something very similar in a food processor, and I know personally that food processors do a lot of things that blenders don't, but with that, I'm like, why? Is it just that's what happened to be there, or are there certain times I'd really want to use a food processor for that and other things? So Chef Keith... What say you on this? Not all of us have been chefs for 30 years. We don't know this stuff. When do I want a food press processor? When do I want a blender? And when does it not matter? Hey, Chef Keith Snow here. Wanted to answer the question uh, from Tara about food processors and blenders and why Bobby Flay might use one um, or the other. Now, The thing I'll say, first of all, is I own both a Cuisinart food processor, the 14-cup model. I also own a Vitamix. I think it's the it's a Vitamix Professional, whatever. They have a lot of numbers on there. E either way, it's a pretty awesome device, the Vitamix. Now, these different kitchen implements are good for doing different things. And this is the, the overarching point here is that for people to understand that a blender, like a household blender, you know, your Osterizer, Hamilton Beach, compared with a Vitamix, compared with a food processor, compared with a stand mixer that can do attachments and things like that, all of these items are designed with one job in mind, and oh, by the way, they can do other things. Now, how well they do those other things is really the, the kicker here. Now, um, The Vitamix, what does it do well? It makes amazing smoothies. That is probably its, it's uh, why it's famous. It makes incredible smoothies, and they are smooth, and they have a very silky mouthfeel. And you can take vegetables, like for instance, we will take kale, fresh kale, a big bunch of it, and just jam it down into those blades. We'll put a whole apple with the stalk, the seeds, everything, skin on top of that. We'll put a frozen banana or two. We'll put some almond milk or coconut water or water, whatever it might be. Maybe some protein powder, a um, bunch of ice cubes. We'll put the top on and we'll process that or blend that with the Vitamix. And sometimes we'll use the plunging stick. Usually if there's a whole apple, we'll use the plunging stick. And it will basically just destroy everything in there. And this is the one thing for those of you that are going to make a purchase and you're trying to decide between the Blendtec or the Vitamix. They're both great, but the Blendtec doesn't have the uh, patented um, thing that you, you know, the, the tamper, the thing that you push down in there and, and force things against the blade. Now, they say that that makes up for it with the way they design their blender bottle, but I, uh, I'm a... Uh, a lover of the Vitamix, if that means anything to you all. Now, so that's what the Vitamix does really well. What doesn't, does it also do okay? 
you know, they say it makes ice cream. You go to Costco, they're going to be making some ice cream. They turn it upside down. Ooh, uh, and that's all great, but, you know, that doesn't compare with a real ice cream machine. It makes sort of an icy kind of a sorbet-like thing, but it's not true ice cream. It will never produce the mouthfeel that you'll get with properly um, blended ice cream. So it does it, and they call it a, yeah, it makes ice cream. Well, that's true. You know, I, I also can run the 100-yard dash, but, you know, Usain Bolt is going to go by me like like I'm going backwards. So there, there's a lot of differences here. Now, food processor will not make a smoothie. It's designed to break things down, to shred vegetables. Uh, I made sauerkraut, you know, lacto-fermented sauerkraut about a month ago. And I didn't use my Vitamix to break it down. I didn't use uh, a hand scraper. I used my shredding disc on the uh, on the food processor, and I processed about 10 pounds of cabbage, fresh cabbage in that thing, and it does a great job. So you have to have the right tool for the job. Now, getting to the food processor a little more, I just used mine the other day to process 15 pounds of cayenne peppers. Now, could I have used a Vitamix? Yes, but I would have had to use liquid because you, you fill that up with peppers. Um, it's just not going to break them down the way a food processor, and this is because of the shape of the bowl, the way gravity works, space, the blades, everything. So the food processor broke them down into a mash and, and allowed me to salt these peppers and get them into a container and let you know natural fermentation take place. Um, but I couldn't have really done it very efficiently. I would have been there all day messing with the Vitamix. So you have to pick the right machine. Now, onto the marinade and the, and the crux of your question here. Why does Bobby Flay make a marinade? Sometimes he uses a blender. Sometimes he uses a food processor. He is... Um, he doesn't say it, but what he's trying to do is he's messing with surface area. Now, what on earth is surface area? Think of, I think the easiest way to um, give you a good demonstration in your mind is I like iced coffee. So I'll brew really dark, like super pitch dark, you know, good high quality coffee that you could never drink with half and half because it's so strong, you know, you'd jump out of your skin. But it makes great iced coffee. Now, the trick is to take. Uh, coffee, I just brewed 200-degree coffee and get it iced without melting all the ice and having watery stuff. So in order to do that, what you need to do is increase the surface area of the ice. You do that by using the crushed ice that your refrigerator door will put out. Huge difference. If you put in the ice cubes, you pour your hot coffee over, even if you agitate it, you're going to have a much uh, more watery finished product. If you use the crushed ice and you pour it over, there's so much more surface area that the chilling effect is much, much quicker. Now, what in the heck does that have to do with marinades, you might be thinking? Everything. When Flay is doing a marinade or when you're going to do the marinade that I'm going to give you, um, you need to focus on surface area. Now, if he's using one or the other, he either wants to marinate something a little more quickly or maybe um, he's trying to, you know, if he's using big chunks of ginger, if you take... A, big chunk of ginger, ginger and garlic, and you just chop them with a uh, food processor, you're going to have big chunks. And then when you try to marinate something, you don't have as much surface area, you're going to get a quarter of the flavor. If you run it through the food, the uh, excuse me, the Vitamix, and you increase the surface area by breaking it down more fully, you'll have much more marination happening. So this is the reason why he may choose one or the other. Now I'm going to give you a good marinade right now, real quick, to use over chicken. And you can do this in your Vitamix or your lousy household blender. 
But still, they're going to both increase the surface area more than a food processor would. Here you go. Half a cup of plain yogurt. The juice of one lime. Don't use that green plastic fake lime in the store. Juice of one real whole lime. A bunch of fresh thyme. Grab your thyme bush with one hand. Take the ends with the other hand. Twist. Throw the whole thing in there, stems and all. This is where the Vitamix will be better. A half-inch piece of ginger. Do not bother peeling it. Two washed and trimmed green onions, one tablespoon curry powder, one pinch cayenne pepper if you like it spicy, two or three pinches, or just throw in two or three cayenne peppers, a pinch of pumpkin pie spice. Now, whack this thing down with your your Vitamix or blender till it's nice and smooth because you want a lot of marination action. The yogurt's going to get in there and do a lot of work. Now, pour it over chicken thighs. You can do this overnight. You can do it two days in advance if you want to, but it's definitely got to be refrigerated. Or just do it out on the counter for an hour or two and then grill those chickens. Serve them over jasmine or basmati rice, which is that nice aromatic rice. And then what I like to do is make an onion, white onion and tomato chutney, which is really awesome. And if you really need the recipe, you can go over to Harvest Eating. Or just email me and make sure that I post it, Keith at HarvestEating.com. But that is an awesome marinade. Um, that yogurt and the curry and the lime juice and the green onion, little background notes of pumpkin pie spice, and the thyme. Now, when you do thyme and pumpkin pie spice, there's cloves, there's nutmeg. You're getting that little bit of that jerk chicken action going on. So there's a lot of things in there. Now, if you really need to, you can throw a clove or two of garlic in that. Uh, marinade. So this is where you make it your own. But at the end of the day, as they say in corporate America, the 30,000 foot view of this marinade is that it's going to make your chicken amazing. And when you have, that's what's so great about Indian food, that the use of spices and yogurt and that aromatic rice and these different chutneys, tamarind chutney, this onion tomato chutney makes it very exciting. Now for me, I make um, this uh, fermented pepper sauce, which this stuff is crazy good. It's crazy good. I'll just put, I don't know, two or three heaping tablespoons in the aroma of that stuff. Man, you can't stop eating it. But anyway, nine minutes and five seconds has elapsed, so Jack is going to cut me off at ten. I wanted to thank all you people out there in TSP land. Um, the, the the update on the pasta sauces that I've been talking about for it seems like months now. They're in the Harvest Eating store selling. If you want to buy some using your TSP coupon, you can do that. We are still um, readying the shipment to Amazon. It should be hopefully live depending upon how quick they get it in and, and have it ready to go by the end of next week. Still giving out those coupons. Um, Keith at HarvestEating.com will give you an Amazon coupon, or if you just want it right away, you can go to the Harvest Eating store. I appreciate all of you folks that shop with Harvest Eating. I see those TSP coupon codes, which you can find inside. Well, now I just gave it away, but <laughs> uh, it's inside your uh, member support brigade area. But um, you guys are, are over there shopping a lot. I greatly appreciate it, so thank you very much, 958, 959. Take care, everybody. Later. Ask them about a food processor and a blender, and they'll still make you hungry at the end. Anyway, little addition there to what uh, Chef Keith said for you. The guys that are paleo are going, I, I, I don't want to put that beautiful chicken on the rice because I don't, don't want to eat the rice. Um, either eat a little bit of rice, or here is a, a Jack recipe add-on uh, that would go fabulous with that chicken. Just absolutely fabulous with that chicken. And it's so simple 
get a couple zucchinis, or depending on how many people you have, maybe one zucchini or two zucchinis, uh, one yellow squash, or two, depending on how many people you're feeding, and one uh, Japanese-style long eggplant, or two, depending on how many people you're feeding. Take them and cut them in half. So all you have to do is just cut them in half longwise. Hit them with a little bit of oil. I like peanut oil. If it were Bobby Flay, for some reason, this guy's addicted to canola oil, but I'd go with peanut oil. And then salt and pepper on both of them. Put them cut side down on the grill and grill them just until they're grilled enough to have some grill marks on them. Flip them over. Do the same thing on the skin side. When you flip them over, if you want to follow that little curry thing that the uh, Chef Keith has going there uh, with that, a light, tiny sprinkling of curry powder just on the upside. I mean, just barely like you were doing that wisp of cinnamon thing that the pain in the ass person uh, at Starbucks orders their half-calf, half-decaf uh, mocha latte with a wisp of cinnamon. Just a little bit of that flavor there. And then get it off the grill. Let it set for just a moment so that it kind of firms up a bit because it's really hot then. And then cut it into pieces and make that like a, a it's almost uh, a ratatouille at that point is what you would call it. And serve the chicken with that. And let the juice from the chicken kind of get in with those vegetables and everybody gets to know each other a little bit there. And that would give you a paleo alternative to the rice. Just a little aside there if you weren't hungry enough already. And those of you that generally say I don't like eggplant, try that. Instead of the great big giant honking eggplant, get one of those one or two of those long Japanese style ones and do them with squash grilled whole and then cut into bite-sized pieces on the plate with the chicken. And you can thank me later for that little addition. Next up, it's time to hear an update from a guy that missed out last week, Mr. Paul Wheaton. Can you update us on what's going on at your property in Montana? What's working, what isn't, and what are you making changes to, and why? Just a basic update on the Duke of Wheaton, uh, the, the Dukedom of Wheatenburg. What's going on, Paul? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from... Wheaton Laboratories. I'm here with Jocelyn Campbell, and let's see if we can squeeze into 10 minutes what's going on right now. Um, first of all, got to announce that we have seven ants. Uh, the Ant Village yeah. Challenge requires a minimum of six ants, and that's where we're going to give away uh, an acre with uh, lifetime rent. Um, so we've we've got enough to be able to do the Ant Village Challenge. Excellent. And and the other thing is we got two more ants possibly coming soon, so we might be up to nine ants by the next time uh, we record something. Um, one of the requirements, so two of the seven ants though haven't nailed down their plot yet because we've got a requirement that says that uh, before you start to modify an acre. Uh, you need to have listened to at least 200 of my podcasts. And so I'm sure your pod people uh, would agree that when you've listened to 200 podcasts, you got a pretty good idea of what the comfort zone of the tyrant of the land would be. And, right. And really, they, they got to decide whether or not they're going to live under my tyranny. I think they should listen to the 200 podcasts before deciding to be an ant mm -hmm. and making the official decision. So, um, But some people they, you know, wanted to get in on it without listening to those. Figured they'd listen to them while they build or, so, they, or while they prep or whatever. They I felt like they knew a, they knew yeah. enough already to make the decision. And so mm -hmm. now they're 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 listening to, you know, gobs of my podcast all day long. Mm -hmm. um, the berm shed, uh, the, the, the logs are all done. The, the general structure is complete. 
we're just piling on the last bit of dirt. Now, we thought we would have it built in four days. And by we, I mean, I mean Brian. He said, it, I'll get that done in four days. But that was assuming that all of the logs would be there ready to go. And that, and we're finding out that the, that gathering the logs, um, is turning out to be about 90 to 95% of the work and yeah. putting together, uh, these, these, uh, log structures. And that's time consuming. It, it very much is. So it could, mm-hmm. could still possibly have been done in four days. But here's the amazing thing. 1700 square feet of dry storage, $97 in materials cost. Um, so, you know, we are achieving one thing. Now, I'm, I hope that on the next one, we can get all the logs all set up and then say, ready, go. Right. Which, which you know, that's what Dick Prennicky did in, right. in Alone in the Wilderness, is he had all his logs already there, and then he built himself a log cabin in just a few weeks, um, and it's all by himself using nothing but hand tools. Uh, but, but, yeah, he had the logs there. So do people know what the berm shed's made out of? Uh, the berm shed is... Um, Logs. A log frame mm-hmm. covered with smaller logs, mm-hmm. uh, covered with uh, recovered used billboard material. Which are effectively very thick tarps. Yeah. Yeah. We use several of them in layers. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it's all covered in dirt. So on the outside, it looks like a berm. And on the inside, it looks like a log shed. Um, and these logs we have not peeled because it's more of a shed environment, we didn't worry about peeling the yeah. logs. Not yeah. peeling makes it go much faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I just so, wanted to make sure people knew what was involved there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it looks awesome and amazing, mm-hmm. and I, I still wish we'd done it in four days. Uh, we had an architect here for two weeks, Davin Hoyt, an architect. Uh, he was um, uh, helping the ants with their building design. So each ant gets an acre, and then they need to get a... get uh, something built before the snow flies, or they're going to be damn cold. Right. This is Montana. Right. Um, and uh, uh, also, he was helping with uh, refinements and drawings of our existing Wafati stuff. So, I, I kind of feel like the the Wafati article needs a major over- overhaul because I wrote that article like six years ago, and then it was just fantasy. And now we've got, you know, so many Wafatis that are in existence, including other people building them. Right. And we just need to, you know, drive home some of the points about the designs. Um, yeah. And so now we've got these really amazing drawings. I need to overhaul that article. That's awesome. Thank, uh, thank you, Davin. That's yeah, awesome. thanks, Davin. <laughs> also, along, the, along those lines, professional timber framer John Romanelli is here right now giving uh, timber framing advice and other natural building advice to the people that are here. Uh, we got a super week coming up. Um, is it next week? Is it this upcoming right. week? Right. And that's where it's like one week out of a month we say, hey, all you permies, come on down here all at the same time. And then that way you can kind of hang out with each other. And that's this upcoming week. And we're trying to throw, you know, we throw in a tour. We um, we, we might talk Fred into a, a wild plants walk. And we have a beekeeping workshop going on. So we try to throw in good learning opportunities as well as hoping everybody wants to help out and help the ants and things like that. Well, the, and the beekeeping workshop, we're going to have permaculture apiarist. So it's it's a sapphire permaculture apiary. Uh, Jacob oh. Westner, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a local permaculture uh, beekeeper, and right. and we're not going. He's not going to just teach a beekeeping workshop.
workshop, but we're going to actually harvest the honey out of our hive. Yeah. And he he shortened his name to Sapphire Apiary, though. Well, I, I put the word permaculture back in there. <laughs> he can change okay. it all he wants. I'm sticking to the old one. Um, and so, so anyway, uh, and we're, we're going ahead, we've paid for that. And so anybody who is here can go ahead and, and right. have that for, for free. Yeah. Um, Let's see. The excavator is finally running. You know, and I, I just got to say that we've had so many problems with our equipment. And I think I mentioned this in, in, in Jack's show already is, um, we got to move away from owning this old equipment and we just need to rent. And, and so now the excavator, we've got a bunch of stuff to do with the excavator, but I think this fall we're going to sell it. And then the future will just rent. Whenever we need something, we just rent it. Uh, here's a new thing. We we've got uh, we've had some ideas about a tiny house village uh, at base camp, and yeah. um, that has begun. It's happening right now. There there um, uh, there are people up there building the first tiny house here, and yeah. and with the idea that there might be six or seven tiny houses over the next five years or so. So right. uh, that's that's underway. Ducklings have arrived. I know, Jack, you're a big fan of, of uh, raising ducks. And one of our aunts uh, has received uh, a few ducklings. And, Evan. Yeah, yeah, Evan. He's he's very excited. Yeah. He's been uh, – he's got a junk pole fence. He has a pot-bellied pig. And apparently in one spot where he's got a junk pole fence, he, uh, he moved the pig from one paddock to another paddock. So he lifted a bunch of the junk poles and the pig moved to the next paddock. And now the pig has the idea that this is a place where if he works it enough, he can get through. So now he's escaped. And I'm kind of wanting to go up there and take a look at that segment of fence in order to be able to get an idea of like, can we make this junk pole fence better right here? Or is this a great implementation? What's going on? Um, our, the things we've referred to as Wheelie Bin Poopers, we, we have two of them here. And I'm, I'm wanting to change the name of that uh, to be a willow feeder because – People keep talking about poop as waste, and I think, you know, really what we want to do is we want to re- return those nutrients back to the soil eventually. And it might be a 10-year cycle, but eventually it should go back to the soil, not just up into the atmosphere. But the fun thing is, is that the, the two poopers we have have been renamed to Chateau de Poux, <laughs> and the other one is Willow Bank. And, right. and that's where you go to make your deposits. Get uh, it? Uh, Get uh, it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, the the Innovators event is uh, coming up early October. Uh, we've got an early bird deal right now through the end of August. Um, and so there will be uh, some people that will be here for a full two weeks. But within that two weeks, there's a three-day event and a five-day event. So the three-day event, I believe, is called Tinkerer Circus. And then the five-day event is the, the Innovators event. Uh, what else we got on here? Uh, Garden pests. Garden pests. Oh, right. You wanted to talk about how we deer and wild turkeys are no longer an issue in our hugel cultures. In because we put up the fence and the junk pole fence and made a paddock, our first paddock at base camp. So it's working great. But now we are suffering from chipmunks and rabbits, and we're you know I think predators will show up in time, yeah. and and this problem will go away. But we're still getting oodles of food coming out all over the place. Um, which, which is despite, despite our contrary rain patterns and us, we, we don't, we avoid irrigation like the plague. We're trying right. to do everything. We want to end up in a space where we're not using any irrigation. Right. All right, Jack, we're out of time. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thanks, bye. <laughs>
One additional note there, Paul mentioned uh, an event that they're going to be doing on uh, Rocket Match Heaters. I put out a blog post about that today. You can learn more uh, in that uh, in that uh, post. There will be a link to it in today's show notes. Uh, let me add on uh, now, a next, or we'll move on to our next question. You know, you had Paul lamenting the fact that predators have not come up in force yet to deal with chipmunks. Well, we got people that have a problem with predators the other way around, or too many of them. This is from James for Darby Simpson. What are my options for dealing with coyotes near a homestead? There are at least two coyotes near the homestead, probably more. Let me, there's more, okay? There's no such thing as two coyotes. Uh, once or twice a year, we have wild geese take up residence in our pond and try to make babies. Shortly after the babies are born, they disappear. We think coyotes are eating them. Sometimes the adults hang around afterwards, but not for long. I'd like to raise some meat birds, chickens most likely, once or twice a year, and need to figure out how to manage this threat. I'll kill them if necessary, but if it can be avoided, then I will try to. Also, are coyotes a danger to small children? I have a four-month-old at the moment. He will eventually be playing outside, and I want to make sure he's safe as well. Uh, Darby, what do you have to say about this, sir? Wild E. Coyote. Super genius. I like the way that rolls out. Wily Coyote, super genius. Wily Coyote, super genius. Hey there, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer James' question about dealing with coyotes and uh, potentially protecting some chickens that he'd like to raise in the future. Uh, James, you, you didn't really say if uh, your, your, you know, your goals with chickens included raising meat birds or laying hens, so I'm just going to kind of tackle this from both angles for you so that we get all the bases covered. Um, you know, what we do here uh, with our meat birds is we, we put them in a uh, portable chicken tractor that they themselves cannot get out of and we have built that so that it is not only resistant to coyotes it's also resistant to wild dogs which we have a pretty good population of uh, raccoons uh, raptors you name it um, it, it's pretty well impenetrable. I mean, it, we, we have had on occasion a raccoon be able to stick an arm in and get a hold of, you know, one chicken or two chickens and, and you know, hurt them or, or kill them or whatever. But um, it really does a great job of uh, protecting all of our meat birds from any kind of predators. And early on, years and years ago, probably, gosh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now, when I built my first chicken tractors, uh, which I was back then, I was, I was building a Salton style pens, which are kind of the two foot tall, flat, rectangular uh, shaped chicken tractors. I was just using chicken wire um, around the 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 vertical portion of the chicken tractor uh, to keep the birds in and keep predators out. And I learned the hard way uh, one night that that is not good enough to keep out any kind of a canine. We actually had some wild dogs rip some holes in that chicken wire and go in and sport kill about 110 chickens in a couple of hours. And uh, that was really unfortunate. Those birds were like uh, about a week or 10 days from processing size and, you know, it was a hard lesson learned. So uh, if you uh, just do a quick Google Google search and you use my name and chicken tractor there's no shortage of images out there but if you take a close look what we use now on our chicken tractors is a hardware cloth that's usually half inch by half inch sometimes one inch by one inch depends on what I can get a hold of at the time but on the bottom two feet 
uh, of the, the vertical side of the, the front of that uh, chicken tractor. We actually put that hardware cloth because a dog or a coyote or anything of, of any size really can't get through that hardware cloth. And to get above that hardware cloth, they have to be standing up on their back two legs. I'm not saying they're not going to get through the chicken wire standing up on their back two legs, but they do lose a lot of power when they're standing up like that. It's a lot harder for them to break through it. And since we've uh, gone to that kind of material on the bottom of the chicken tractors, we just we have not had any issues with any kind of canines um, with our, our meat birds. So uh, now as far as laying hens, what you'd want to do if you're using any kind of a portable house, and hopefully that's what you're doing, you're using some kind of a portable chicken house uh, out on pasture, and you're, you're letting them out every day so they can frolic around and, you know, eat bugs and, uh, you know, pick at all kinds of grass and everything and, and be able to really move around and get most of their um, dietary needs from the land instead of from chicken feed, you would want to use some portable netting uh, I, you know, from a company like Premier or Kenco. Uh, take your pick. They, they both make a pretty good product. Uh, each one has, you know, pros and cons. Um, but, you know, put up that portable netting so that it keeps them within a certain boundary of their chicken house. And put a solar charger on it, uh, and then obviously at night you want to put the birds up. Um, this, I mean, this gives them 24-hour protection. So if they're out during the day, and you do happen to have some kind of a canine come into contact with them, most likely that canine, when he gets hit by that electric fence, is going to turn around and go the other way and, and try to find an easier food source. Um, and, and two, you want to make sure during the day that uh, you know. They've got somewhere they can get in or under in your, on your, your portable house to uh, protect them from raptors, which is actually going to be of a, a greater concern to you uh, from predation than uh, coyotes or raccoons or anything like that. Um, and like I said, just you know, be sure and put them up at night, and you know that way they're protected all the time. But regardless of what you're wanting to raise, whether it's you know meat birds or layers or or whatever. Uh, you know, either way, they're safe day and night using either one of these systems. Um, as far as your, you know, questions uh, about, you know, how aggressive are coyotes uh, or how to, you know, protect your homestead from them, I don't really have any tips or tricks to give you in terms of warding them off uh, other than, uh, you know, warding them off by uh, using yeah, acute lead poisoning. Uh, to get rid of them, um, <laughs> that's what we've done on occasion here. It's it's been extremely rare that we've had to do that. Uh, we only do it when it's you know uh, of absolute last resort. But um, I'm going to turn that over to Jack and kind of let him tackle that because he's got a bit more experience uh, than I do when it comes to uh, dealing with coyotes and can probably you know answer uh, your question with more detail than I can. So anyway, I hope you find that helpful, James. Uh, thanks for calling in the question, guys. I love taking these questions on. Feel free to. Uh, Send more of them in to me, and uh, Uncle Jack will forward them on to me. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about me, head out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. Uh, there's a ton of free articles out there on all kinds of stuff pertaining to small-scale farming uh, for homesteading or for profit. Uh, if you have any specific questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Happy to try and help you guys out. And, uh, yeah, if you'd like, you can also sign up for the uh, free blog email newsletter. So anytime I do post something new, you'll have an email uh, letting you know about it, and you can read it. And for those of you who would like to go deeper, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations, and it is tailored to you. It's all about you, your situation, what it is you're wanting to learn about. And uh, you can find more information about that out at DarbySimpson.com as well. As always, Jack, thanks a bunch. Guys, have a great weekend, and take care.
Well, definitely good advice on keeping your animals safe. As far as the ultimate solution, let me just start out that I think that the part I'm asked to cover, which is what what threat do these animals represent to your children, um, the the mitigation of any actual threat, I think, is is highly enhanced by taking the advice of kill the damn things. Um If you have ever been a hunter of coyotes, and I have, then you know that where coyotes are hunted, they become rapidly one of the most difficult animals to shoot that you can find. Um, there's a lot more people that have probably successfully hunted turkeys, and turkeys are difficult to hunt, uh, you know, if you're not using a rifle, if you're using shotgun or what have you. Uh, but there's probably far more people have killed turkeys with a bow and arrow than coyotes. Bow hunting coyote is really getting to a point of you got to be good at your craft. And this is why. When coyotes are hunted or pressured even just a little bit, they see human beings as a predator that is superior to them. And the smell of a person is danger. The movement and figure of a person is there. The sound of a person is danger. Danger, danger, like, like, like Steve was saying, danger Will Robinson, right? That's what's going off in a coyote's mind when the coyote is treated like what it is. It is a predator. It means to do harm and kill our small livestock, our cats, our smaller dogs. That's what they do. They are a predator. And there's a place for them, and here's the good news. There's a ton of open land out there for a coyote to make a living on, and it doesn't need to be your backyard. Coyotes, if they are shot on sight, on your land, and on the land of others, are almost zero threat to almost anything. And the only time that they will come around and try to eat your, your animals is at night, and that can be handled with a variety of protective measures from electronic fencing to the things that Darby talked about with chicken tractors to really good coops to having big, giant dogs that crush their skulls and kill them. Okay, I don't hate coyotes. But they have their place, and it's not in my backyard. There's coyotes that live right here. They stay away from here because they will get shot. Or they will get chomped by a 150-pound German Shepherd. And that's just the way that it is. And they know that. People around here shoot coyotes. Now, there's not somebody out trying to kill coyotes every night. But every once in a while, dead coyote. So the coyote's viewpoint of the human being is danger. It smells like a person. I don't want it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to get now. Have there been any fatal attacks on human beings by coyotes in North America? The answer is there's been two. There's been about 35 other attacks. This is ever. Most of them in California. The two fatalities occurred, one in California, one in Canada. The fatality in California happened in the 1980s, um, and it is a very well-known attack because it's so rare. It happened in the town of Glendale, California, to a three-year-old girl named Kelly Keene. She was attacked and drug off. The father went after her, found her. She was operated on for several hours and then passed away. Tragic. Uh, another one was a 19-year-old girl, Canadian folk singer named Taylor Mitchell, and that happened actually in Canada. Uh, in Cape Breton Highlands National Park in Nova Scotia. I want to point out that in almost all of these attacks, so at other places of attacks include Pasadena, California, Pasadena, California, Pasadena, California, 
Okay, Agora Hills, California, Oceanside, California, Fallbrook, California. Are you seeing a pattern here? These are all like places where a whole bunch of people live in little subdivisions, and it's not okay to shoot animals anymore. And then the one attack that happened, let's say, in nature, happened at a national park in Nova Scotia where hunting's illegal. Do you see the commonality? Hey, first of all, let's talk about the overall risk. Two people killed by coyotes ever. And let's just say since 1980. Okay? Let's say we don't know. There are no medical records from 1979 back. 1984, we've had two people killed by coyotes. There's probably been more people killed setting fireworks off on top of their head than there have been by coyotes. I'm just guessing. I know there's at least one of those. There's definitely been a lot more people killed falling down stairs, including kids, uh, since 1980 than by coyotes. There's certainly been more people that slipped and fell and killed themselves in a bathtub. There's certainly been more people killed in automobile accidents. There's certainly been probably more people killed by snakes, and that's pretty dadgone rare in this country to die from a snake bite. It doesn't happen often, and usually it's a young male bitten on the hand or the lower arm, which tells you something about what he was doing with the snake. My point is that there are a hell of a lot more likely threats to your kids than coyotes. But I can't say 100% that no coyote provo- you know, it, it provides any threat whatsoever to your kids. It just isn't the case that it does happen. But it almost always happens in coyotes in these residential areas where animal rights activists don't want them shot. Oh, God, no. And, you know, what have you. And any animal exposed to human beings for long enough begins to lose its inherent fear of human beings. As it begins to lose its initial fear, it starts assessing a human being up and saying, is this a prey item? This is a predator. That's what it is. You know, the average weight of a male coyote in North America is about 44 pounds. That's that's the national average. A female's average, 40. Okay? Um... That's the upper end of their average. I'm going with the upper end. 18 to 44 pounds for males, 15 to 40 pounds for for females. Let's look it up on Google. Now, so let's say I've got two, a a big male coyote, 44 pound coyote. It's looking at 200 pound man, me. It's, it's going to go, nah, I I don't know. I don't think so. That doesn't look like a, a prey item. Now you got a little three, four year old kid waddling around. Now think about how kids move. They move kind of jerky and off. They don't move smooth and fluid. This is this is prey-like behavior to a predator, and they're, they're looking at this 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 animal, and that's what you are to a coyote. You're an animal, and they're going this this animal's about like 40, 30, 40 pounds. I can take this. Now does that mean they're immediately going to attack? No, because there's still an inherent fear. Coyotes still have an inherent fear of everything human. Humans are dangerous. But the more desensitized, the more there just might be that moment where the attack's triggered. You have to think about it like your house cat. Okay, so you have a house cat sitting in your house. And you sit there and you shake a string a little bit. And that cat may or may not come out to play and attack that string. But if, if the cat's sitting along a wall and we start dragging that string really slow around the edge of that wall, just where it's about to go, out that cat goes nuts and jumps on it, right? Attacks that string and balls up on it. We've, we've triggered the predator instinct. 
So there's always the chance that an animal assessing the situation with, with, a, with another creature that it sees that's small enough that it believes that it can attack it, behaves in such a way, does something that triggers the prey instinct. This little girl, it was probably that kind of thing. Like this coyote had become desensitized. People were seeing coyotes running around in the streets. And even after this happened, when the city went and got rid of like, like killed 55 coyotes, because that's how many were around, you know, that were easily killed, uh, the animal rights activists came out and said, no, don't do that. Okay? In fact, one of these scumbag animal rights activists actually accused the parents of being the reason this child was killed. They said it already, the child died from a damaged spleen. It was a sick thing to say about a family that just lost a kid to a coyote where the, the coroner said this child basically had a broken neck from being attacked by this animal. Animal rights activists are part of this problem. Okay? Again, coyotes that are shot routinely or even occasionally don't lose that fear aspect. This girl that was killed up in Canada was a folk singer. She was kind of a small statue girl for 19 years old. And she was like really into the environmentalism, hippie type thing, you know. I'm not putting that down. Just saying that's how she was. Like all animals are cool. We have an animal spirit or whatever. And my take is she probably saw, because there were other people in this area that saw a pair of coyotes working together that had almost no fear of humans, and she saw them, she probably approached them and probably thought she's dealing with a couple dogs. And what do you do if you want to get a dog to approach to make the dog feel less threatened? Instead of looking big and scary, you look small of stature. You probably get down, oh, come here, puppy. Chomp. Dead. That's not how you interact with wild animals. Is that definitely what happened? No one really knows because she was alone when she was attacked. But those are the two fatal instances. And they were both in areas where the coyotes became acclimated to human beings. Two hikers saw this pair of coyotes that killed this girl on the same day and said these animals had almost no fear. Desensitized. So if you want to make sure your kids are safe on your property, when you see coyotes, shoot it. Shoot it. Under the legal you know, standards of your, your, your town, city, you know, whatever laws. But kill it. Kill a couple of them. You'll start seeing a whole lot less of them because coyotes are also one of the smarter canine predators out there. The, the, the Native Americans had a great affinity, a brotherhood with the wolf. But what they have referred to the coyote uh, as was the trickster. The coyote was the trickster. Now, to be the trickster, you have to be smart. These are a very intelligent predator. They have survived man's attempt to wipe them from the face of the earth through shooting, through trapping, through poison, you name it, they've stuck around. They're not gone. We can learn something from them. They are the survivor, the survivor, the trickster. So that intelligence can be channeled. And what happens is you start popping coyotes, they start to figure out, unless there's a compelling reason to be here, I'm going to make a living somewhere else. You know, Our birds are contained every night, but we have no losses from coyotes. None. Why? Because they know they'll get shot. We have big dogs running around. The dogs aren't out all night long, but they're out periodically throughout the night. And in general, houses and people are feared here. by the. We hear them yelping at night. We hear them out in the, 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 the wooded areas and stuff like that. I'm not saying it's impossible that we'll have it. We had a loss a long time ago with the geese. 
you know, two years ago we lost some geese that we're pretty sure were from coyotes. You know, they can get over a fence even with some barbed wire on top of it. But in general, the 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 attitude around here is a good coyote is a dead coyote, and I don't like to senselessly kill anything. But let me tell you the thing about coyotes: you shooting three or four or five or six or a dozen a year will not get rid of them and will not hurt the population. They can far more. They compensate for that for reproduction. They are actually a pretty valuable asset. Their pelts are quite valuable and quite useful, especially certain times of the year when their pelts are in better shape. Uh, I don't believe in killing anything just to kill it, but to kill to feed myself, to provide myself with materials, or to protect the animals under my care, I am happy to do it. It's kind of the same way I look at, you know, I don't ever want to shoot anybody, but if you come after my family and I think you mean to harm them, I will give you a fatal dose of lead poisoning. Well, you come after my ducks, you come after my dogs, you come after my turkeys, you come after my geese, then you'll get a lead pill that will kill you. And if we take this attitude with coyotes, we're not going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I don't go out looking for coyotes. I, you know, it's legal to go out here and, and, and shoot them at night. I don't do that. But if you come here, dead coyote. Neighbors, go there, dead coyote. The result, there ain't never been no kid around here attacked by a coyote. Now, I'm telling you what, it won't be long before you hear it happen from North Texas. Too many freaking yuppies moving into these HOAs up in the northern uh, suburbs like Plano and Richardson and Allen and McKinney, etc., Frisco, etc., where they have these riparian areas, these buffer areas, and these just natural fields where coyotes live, and more and more of the ranchers moving out, and more and more of the yuppies moving in, and the coyotes start showing up, and everybody wants something done about the coyote, but nobody wants coyote killed. Sooner or later, it will happen here, and that is where it will happen. It will not be a place like this. It really won't. It'll be where people want to protect the coyote, to change the nature of the animal from something that fears human beings to something that human beings should fear because of a lack of understanding. It makes me think of something that we had quoted in one of the history segments, The Prince by Machiavelli. Those who are kind when they should be cruel will have to be cruel when they should be kind. The time for kindness isn't when a coyote is prowling around and looking to do harm to your stock. That's the time for the cool, calculating dose of lead poisoning for the coyote. Overall, even with the desensitivity, there are so many things that are out there that are more dangerous to us as human beings than coyotes. It's not something that we should spend a lot of time worrying about. But if you live somewhere where they are... If you end up especially with a coyote that starts to not turn tail and run the second you're around. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Show you.